Mr. B and I come to visit. What is it, Broken of the Daydream cast? I think we need a guest on this episode. Okay, okay. We, we haven't had a lot of guests around here. Well, we're going to guest it up. We need a YouTube star as big as Jake Paul. A, a huge name in the industry. <laughs> yes. Some sort of renaissance man. He sings, he dances. Oh, yeah. He has a podcast called Essays in Espressos with other YouTubers. Who could this be? Who could this be? You're talking him up so much. Given the name is Essays with YouTubers, I'm going to guess his name is like Essay Aesthetics. Oh, yeah. I should have picked that. Uh, I should have picked that name, though. I regret choosing the name that I did choose because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you choose it? I just thought it sounded cool. It does. You should say your name. <laughs> Hi, I'm Acer. Acer Aesthetics on YouTube. That's awesome. Uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, ugh. Put me on the spot Well, there. we're primarily um, a, a film-focused uh, network of podcasts, so not everyone looks up video essays on uh. video games and lore. Well, I'm very much against movies. I think movies are terrible. Some are pretty good, though. I agree. This is this is a good take. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. What about what about just what about books? Oh, books used to be good. Books they haven't be been good in a while. Uh, ever since audiobooks came, books mm. have kind of been on the way out for me. Okay. I agree. What about these, these are all good takes. What about books adapted from video games? Ah. Uh, ooh. Have you guys ever have you read like? Uh, like the Doom novelization and stuff like that. I um, I kind of make it a habit of reading video game novelizations. I've read the adaptations of the first and second God of War, and they're both terrible. <laughs> Who would do that? Who would make a novel on God of War? I don't know, but it, they're both terrible. Did you did you read the Bioshock novel? There is a Bioshock novel. No, I tried looking for it, but my uh, local library or bookstore didn't have it. Yeah, my understanding uh, my understanding with book novel uh, novelizations for games is that they're either com they go completely insane, like the Doom novelizations, mm -hmm. or, uh, or they're just like, meh. It, it just depends on how much stuff there is in the game, because if it's a very story-focused game, then I suppose you could just directly put in the dialogue but with something like doom like what are you what characterization are you putting in there there's no cast in doom to talk about uh to talk about other youtubers real quick uh super bunny hop did a video on novels and he talked about the hitman novels uh like the codename 47 stuff and all that and he talked about how interesting it was that the writer kept talking about food and locations like extended amounts of time uh, you know what okay. i mean so it's ghost written by george R. R. martin 
<laughs> yeah, no, but like also in my head, I was like, that's a very James Bond novel thing. Mm, and yeah. I, I don't think he made the connection where it's like Hitman to James Bond. But like, yeah, if you read a James Bond book, it's like, I wouldn't say 80% of it, but like there's a good percent of it that's like James Bond's eating a nice cream, you know, thing in the hotel, blah, blah, blah. It's great. Yeah. So welcome to the Daydream cast. We occasionally talk about video games. <laughs> All right. It's good to be here. When we have a new guest on, we kind of like to get their vibe for the audience. What sort of what sort of video games draw you in? What's what's the flame to your moth? I used to be big into like we'll be talking about Bioshock later. That's a big game for me. I used to be big into like these sort of uh, commercially critically successful AAA games. Okay. Not so much anymore. I I feel like I've grown away from that, and I'm more interested in the tiny little screws on spaceships than I am the spaceship itself. Uh, so when I see, for example, an indie game where it's, you're stationary and you're in a basement and there's a monster in the basement and you need to figure out how to defeat this monster, but you can't move. And every time you look away from the monster, the monster comes closer to you. I'm like, ooh, that's an interesting sort of parameter to design a game around. How is this going to play? And it was pretty good. It's called Don't Look at the Red Fridge in the basement, I think. So okay. those sorts of highly experimental indie titles are kind of where I live these days. Yeah, more mechanically focused. Yeah, yeah. and you're you're a game designer yourself now, right? Oh, you yes. made Snail, and you're also like going into other things. So that mechanics aspect is probably informing a lot of how you learn about how to design games now, right? Yeah, uh, well, for Snail... Uh, I, I feel kind of bad saying this because whenever you put something out there that you made yourself, whenever people criticize it, the easiest thing to say is, well, I wasn't really trying. But mm. for Snail, it is a little bit true. It, it wasn't just something I farted out and then, you know, people don't like it and I go, well, I could have done better if I tried. This was very explicitly, I'm testing out these different kinds of locking off content and uh, these sorts of progression gauntlets. So like Zelda always had those dungeons. Uh, I, I like to refer to that sort of segment just as a gauntlet. You see it also in Silent Hill where you're just on the overworld and then you go into like the uh, the apartment building or the hospital. This is the gauntlet in my eyes. The Zelda dungeons, they're just gauntlets. So I wanted, how about I do one gauntlet that's like a horror segment, one gauntlet that recreates the setup and direction from PT where it's just this constantly looping level how about one gauntlet where it's more ambient and you're just walking around a desolate village? And I wanted to do as many different versions of that as I possibly could. And the story that I had in mind, it, it was only like, it was just supposed to be vague stuff. But then I kind of got into it at the end. And you can tell if you actually play the game uh, that like 90% of the story is like in the final like third because that's the point where I was really like, oh no, you know what? I can do a story. I like this. I like where this is going. <laughs> but at the beginning, it's just like, it's just anything and everything and like weird references to other games. So would you say you were making that game more for yourself than for an audience? Well, I so I'm making a big game right now, uh, a bigger game than Snail. And... That's the game that all the systems from Snail came from. I was just designing that. I wanted to do uh, like a low, sort of a, a scaled back Link to the Past title. Uh, not as scaled back as Snail, a little bit bigger. But uh, because I hadn't... So one of the biggest problems when you're designing is 
if your mechanics, if your systems and your objects, if they don't uh, interact really well, that can be a monster because you're just going to have to redo the entire game over and over again until it gets working. So I decided, I, I had hit like a crossroad where 90% of the mechanics the game is going to be utilizing have been created, but I have no idea how they actually interact with one another. And with Snail, I thought I should create like a demo game specifically to see how these mechanics work together and to fix them where, where they don't work together so that when I build the game on top of it, um, I'm not going to encounter any issues because I know how it plays out when it's actually in your hands. Um, yeah. And you can actually see in Snail, if you test it, like enemy patrol routes, the reason they're terrible and the reason the combat is terrible is because the system that I had designed, I had to basically throw it in the trash just two weeks or so before I made Snail because it just wasn't working and I had to create this really dumb uh, scaled back version of it. Uh, same with the the keys. There's one section in the game where I've gotten a lot of comments on where people are like, I'm locked in the basement, what am I supposed to do? And you collect keys in that arena to open up different doors. The idea is you're supposed to use all the keys on this final door and then the keys sort of get used up so they don't clutter your inventory because there's no way to actually drop them. But I didn't communicate that properly enough. So like those sorts of tiny little, ah, you could have fixed that if you just put like four locks and every time you use a key, one of the locks disappears. Those sorts of little touches are where the most valuable feedback has come from. Okay. Yeah, I, I totally get the idea of doing something more as a demo to see if like can it be done um mm -hmm. that's a big thing in animation anytime you see like an animated short from some sort of studio like pixar or something it's generally them testing out like new animation tech for a larger project mm. so like that volcano uh short they did was that like we want to see how we can do this for moana or something yeah almost certainly or like there mm. was um a short sandpiper about like a little bird on a beach, and that was them testing like sand physics for a uh, later picture. I forget which one it was. Probably Moana two. <laughs> yeah. Well, Moana two is not out yet. <laughs> no, I, I meant Moana yeah. also. Uh... <laughs> All right. Yeah, I hate sand. I like I hate designing sand because. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. There's no way you can't because it's it... rough and coarse and gets. I, I, I wasn't gonna do the meme, but. It's, it's such a nightmare to design, especially in uh, like 8-bit or 16-bit pixel styles, because it just, it never looks good. It always looks like, I don't know. I think something like I, maybe that, we shouldn't... you need like good sound design. You need some good crunchy sand. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. You just need to um, map some uh, object on there to like denote like a good sort of sound when you walk on it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing I learned. Uh, like, uh, uh, <laughs> what? No, he just designs oh, I, games. <laughs> I, I, I was go I was gonna say that's another thing I learned is that, uh, like, ninety percent of the game is the uh, is the audio design, which sounds just like obviously that's not true, but it also is true because if the audio design is off, you can make the best game in the world. It won't work. Mm. It just you, you need it needs to hit right like uh, well like I said I, that's another thing that doing snail taught me where I was like 
I need some kind of sound to indicate that things are moving in the menu. How about this? And it's just like a plink. And it sounds so rough when I listen to it now, like almost a year removed from the game. <laughs> yeah. No, because you're just kind of looking for a placeholder. You're not like thinking about yeah. the aesthetic, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's also just loud. And I didn't put in any um, any system because I didn't like I thought like 50 people were going to play it. It's gotten way more popular than that. So I, I wasn't looking at like, oh, this is like a serious self-contained product. It was more just this is an experiment with these mechanics that I've already designed. And I'm like, uh if I'd known so many people were going to play it, I would have done it better. And I, I am. I am going to, I am currently, because I've updated the engine and I've created like 40, 50% of the next game. It's like, it's, it's in that sort of, I could probably release it as like an alpha and I just need to script a few more sequences and then you have like an alpha build of that game. Uh, but I'm taking Snail, I'm putting it in the updated engine uh, just to like have something like I want to get to know the Steam uh, interface when you're develop uh, when you're releasing games and stuff before I uh, yeah anyways moving away moving away from Snail I feel like I've just hogged up the entire podcast so far oh it's fine you're a, you're a, you're a new uh, voice being heard in our little uh, network for the first time so it's good to uh, you know get the gist and we haven't really mm. uh, spoken with a game dev before. So it's good to learn that sort of stuff. Um, so we can move on to uh, what you play in. What what did you play, Murph? What have I played? Um, I've got two uh, slightly high profile, more high profile indie games than I I typically bring. Um, wow. A few episodes ago, I, I remarked how I was looking for a sort of a train game, a a traveling vibe game. And uh, Bro recommended Spiritfarer, which I did recall, I think this was, like, first revealed way back at the first revealing of the, like, Xbox One, or, no, which, what are they on now? The Xbox One X? Yeah. No idea. The, the... I just know that you, you wanted a train game where you saw different passengers and learned their life story. Yes. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like that. Yes. So oh, this... no, it's... It's the Xbox Series X, I believe. Xbox, the monolith. So Spiritfarer is pretty much exactly what I was looking for. The The basic gist of this game is that you are a, a young girl named Stella, and you and your cat have been chosen as the new Spiritfarers. Uh, you know, the, the spirits that guide souls to the afterlife. And you sort of exist in this giant ocean that's, I guess, Limbo? to a degree, and you go around picking up souls and sort of bringing them comfort in their last moments before bringing them to the thereafter, whatever that may be. And it's got this great hand-drawn animation. Every animation in this game is so lively and energetic and cute. It's a very cute game. And your primary gameplay loop is that it is essentially uh, a farming game. <laughs> You have a, a huge boat, and you set up various kind of resource nodes. You set up farms, you set up uh, orchards and smelteries and stuff in order to craft um, certain things to make meals for your passengers. Um, if you give them like their favorite food often, they'll talk to you and you'll raise like affinity and such. 
or you'll craft like new houses on the boat for the spirits to live in according to like their needs um and then the game you know because it is about death and such it does get pretty dang heavy um it deals in it, it's it's cute aesthetic hides a lot of emotional depth uh you know it deals with themes of depression and suicide or um you know one of your passengers is actually your character's uncle um who was a union boss for a lumber mill and one of the things he requests to have made on the boat is a sawmill so he can uh you know do his trade and he like talks to you and says like oh you know you got to learn how to do the sawmill right you don't want to uh you know, lose a finger or an arm or, and he trails off and you're like, oh, (laughs) and then, you know, once the spirit feels they are at peace, once you've like finished their quest line, you bring them to uh, the Everdoor, which is this place in the middle of the ocean and you say goodbye to them and they're effectively out of the game. And I've done that three times so far and it's kind it's pretty emotional each time. Um, So far... The passengers are a lot of grandmas, I will say. Um, Each spirit sort of turns into an animal once they're on the ship. And so far, I've had Grandma Snake, Grandma Hedgehog, Grandma Owl. They are. Like I said, it's it's a very cute game. But then once, like, Grandma Hedgehog starts having, like, dementia, uh, that's a problem. (laughs) But But did it deliver on what you were looking for? Yes. In a game. So you're basically traveling from island to island, and that's basically the bulk of your playtime like the islands have resources like trees to cut down or ore to mine the actual gameplay is the travel because that's when you move around your ship and uh like harvest your your wheat or smelt your ingots or talk to the passengers or cook meals and then like there's great weather effects when it rains the like we were talking about the sound design of the rain is great and sometimes you can just sit down and vibe and look at the ocean and the islands passing by it's a it's a good game i I like it a lot i'm probably going to finish it i think right now it's kind of reaching a um uh, a point where i may be getting a little tired of the loop um i looked up online and evidently like to finish the game it's a 30 hour playtime whoa <laughs> whoa which seems a lot for this type of game um because it's gotten to a point where it's like everything i need to craft requires aluminum ingots now and i'm like where the f- where do i get aluminum i've been to every island i haven't found any aluminum and then i looked up a guide and it's like oh you need to uh finish this character's quest line like well i haven't finished this character's quest line because they they require a house that needs marble and i haven't found marble <laughs> You know, Ugh. so if you're averse to that sort of like crafting gameplay loop, I can definitely see it being off-putting. But I think the story and the characters really carry it. All right. Wow, I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested. You self-censored in the. You almost said the f word. Is this like a cleaner podcast than I'm used to? Oh, Should fuck I be no. worried about swearing? Oh, okay. Fuck okay. no. That's actually <laughs> that's actually something off-putting about uh, Spiritfarer is that um it does have a a coarse language to it with some of the characters uh-huh. oh, yeah. so, so so is it like meant to be conflicted with the visual so it's like cutesy stuff but then serious language and then it's like a weird discrepancy yeah it, it does deal with some heavy themes um and there are a few calculated f-bombs um what what was the what was the next game on your, your uh list so so the next game i have is songs of conquest i've never heard of this this is a very recent release um it's i've had my eye on this for a while as i talked in a previous podcast i'm a huge fan of the heroes of might and magic games 
And this is, uh, in pretty much every way, a spiritual successor. Um, it's by a, a very small indie team, and they're effectively trying to modernize and um, quicken the pace of that style of game. So if you if you haven't listened to the previous podcast where I talked about this franchise, um, Heroes of Might and Magic, it has sort of three aspects. You have an overworld aspect where you explore with your uh, various heroes, your generals, uh, picking up resources and defeating monsters. Then you have a city-building aspect where you make uh, resource nodes and dwellings to recruit uh, creatures into your army. And then you have okay. the actual battles, which are turn-based uh, tactics using the creatures you've recruited. So what this does differently is it tries to streamline a lot of the hero's gameplay. So one thing... Um, I'm not going to try to get too technical because I, I know you two haven't really played it and I don't want it to be like, well, it does this, which is different from this. <laughs> um, like a core thing I can say is um, those creature dwellings I mentioned before is in every hero's game, those dwellings replenish at the start of every in-game week and every day in the game is a turn. So once it gets to the last day of the week, you try to make a beeline back to your castle so you can get a fresh like top off your army. In Songs of Conquest, creature dwellings replenish every day. So you can kind of just have a hero sit there recruiting new creatures each day and then go out with a doom stack and sort of wipe the map. Did you end up liking this title? I like it. I do like it. I appreciate what it's trying to do. The issue is right now they are selling this for $30 in early access. And I, I can't, it, no part of me thinks that it's a better deal than just getting like Heroes of Might and Magic 3 complete off GOG for 250 with an with an HD mod or even getting like Heroes of Might and Magic 5 off of Steam for I think that the complete edition of that goes for like maybe 10 bucks on sale. Cuz right now both those versions have more they have more depth and they have more content. Like, your typical Heroes game has, like, ten factions. This game only has four. Um, and the it has a campaign mode, but the campaign's really short and nothing of real note. And I feel that okay. the efforts to streamline have removed a lot of the... I don't know, I guess the depth? But also, I, I just don't see it having staying power. Like, I've played a few matches, um, even, like, one online, which I typically don't do for these games. And they just went by, like, I got them done in a day. I mean, which is odd to say for a Heroes game, because those games, a game of Heroes can go on for, like, multiple days, depending on how much you want to put into it. There's nothing about it that's really grabbed me. It has this great 2.5, like, pixel art style. It looks a lot like um, Octopath Traveler, like that oh, yeah. style of, like, HD pixels. And the character models are great. The, the soundtrack is great. For a game called Songs of Conquest, they really lean into that. Um, like, one of their ideas is that each faction has like a sort of musical unit that can buff um your other units with a song and that song actually loops into the combat music so if you have uh two factions both doing that it sort of plays like a like a, a remix of both themes that's real cool yeah. what would the uh what would the game need to do do you think to sort of drag you further in i think i think it needs some new some additional factions because with four factions I've already, yeah. like, exhausted them. Like, I've, I've solved them, for lack of a better word. And that's something you don't really want in a Heroes game. Because, like, Heroes 3, that game came out in the 90s, and there are still people finding, like, new 
strategies and like unit synergies and things the the meta needs to evolve is what you're saying yeah and i and, it, and it's pretty stagnant. that's exactly it there's no i don't feel a meta the game is with as streamlined as it is it feels like it's strictly a numbers game like i have more mm. units therefore i i always win whereas with okay. in past heroes games i have gotten by just like using like insane strategies like kiting enemies around the field as i like like my archers pick them off and things like winning by the skin of my teeth and i just don't feel that here in uh songs of conquest which i i feel is a shame because this game has been in development for a while i'm very disappointed it launched in early access even with that development and it was like fairly high profile and i worry it's gonna go away in like a month so if Dang. you want to support like indie devs uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, maybe get it on sale. I think $30 is definitely too steep, but it may also be a good end to this franchise if you don't necessarily want to go into uh, something as in-depth as, like, Heroes 3. Um, yeah, yeah. Before before I go on to my game, Pac-Man Museum Plus, I'm, I might edit this out. Do you guys want to talk about the state of play thing? I completely forgot about it until just now. Do you guys want to talk about oh, the PS like Resident the Evil Sony or anything thing? like that? Sure. Uh, what'd y'all think of it? I... Uh, it's it's a state of play. I mean, they don't make waves anymore. You need an E3 to make like big waves. Mm-hmm. I haven't been excited for like a game announcement since E3 died, and I don't know when the last one was. Like, ooh, ooh, yeah, I want to see more of that. Do you not get excited by Nintendo Direct? No, because because it, like here's the thing with Nintendo. They make incredibly great games. They make such polished games. But I feel like I don't know. I feel like even with like even with like uh, Splatoon and like Breath of the Wild, I feel like they're sort of just in their own world. I feel like yeah, it, it's it's like they're not quite in touch with what you can do with games. I feel. I can I see that they feel like they're in a vacuum and even like Breath of the Wild I like Breath of the Wild a lot I think you're a little sure. more sour on it I believe but like that being said you can tell how much of it was like it's so fascinating to dissect something like that because like part of it is in a vacuum of like wow Nintendo doesn't learn a lot but then Breath of the Wild is also like oh it learned a lot from very specific things and in some ways it felt like chasing trends and in some ways it felt like Nintendo was holding it back still so it's yeah. it's really interesting to see that sort of stuff and yeah when it comes to other stuff I think Nintendo especially when we get into later titles it gets more and more I'm I'm excited by certain developers like uh the strikers developers but otherwise they feel like they're stagnating in uh aesthetic design and sometimes in gameplay too where it feels less fresh and yeah i I can see not being excited by a nintendo i also think uh specifically like you see this in mario where i feel like the uh craziness is sort of gone the sort of chaotic things you could do with a gameplay i feel like it's a bit too sort of uh, it's a bit too play tested the parameters are a bit too strict so you, like you look at a speedrun of Super Mario 64, compare that to a speedrun of Super Mario Odyssey, like you're not like you won't even know what's going on in the 64 one because the strats they found are so insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but like uh, you know they make it's not that they make bad games. It's just that they've they make really really well sculpted games that are very formulaic, very true to what they've already made mostly. 
Possibly overpolished is another way to say it. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, like, what was the last? But going back to yeah, Sony. back to Sony. Yeah, Sony. <laughs> I think I think the issues with the state of plays compared to Nintendo Directs is Nintendo's been doing Directs much longer, so they know how to structure that sort of like just title, title, title reveals format whereas with the state of plays it's a lot of uh soundtrack then logo comes in and you're supposed to be yeah. excited for the logo <laughs> nintendo can get away with and that you're wondering what it is is like is this a dead space game yeah is this a <laughs> yeah nintendo Which can get so away weird. with that because they can plop up like metroid 5 and that's exciting but when like sony plops up i don't know uh dead space 4 <laughs> that's I don't know. It doesn't carry the same gravitas to me. Yeah. Sure. It's also, uh, I think Sony has kind of shut themselves in the foot too because I don't think they have, uh, like, the PlayStation fans are going to come out of the woodworks. I don't <laughs> think they have that great franchises active at the moment. When I think of, like, the great old franchises like Ratchet, Ratchet today is not Ratchet what it used to be. It used to have, like, more teeth and stuff. Like, Jack hasn't, they haven't done anything with that. They don't have Crash Bandicoot, period. They don't own Spyro. Metal Gear Solid is, like, that's a dead franchise, and that wasn't even a Sony franchise by the end. It's like, what do you got? What do you got? Well, Horizon Zero Dawn. Okay, what else do you got? Last of Us. And, like, there are people who love these games, definitely, but I feel those are way too... Like, I don't like cinematic games in general, and when the entire Sony offering is just, like, God of War... Uh, whatever Naughty Dog makes, whatever they're doing over at Santa Monica and Sucker Punch, it's like, this is exactly the things that I don't like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pa um, Pablo said it really well, uh, the original co-host. What he didn't like about Sony was how little it cared about legacy. And it, it mm -hmm. it's a really good example of how legacy can reward a developer or like a publisher with like, hey, you know, we've got... We've got shit, things to get excited about. Even if it's like a an IP or whatever, like bringing back Medieval, even if it doesn't sell well, is still something to care about. They create a culture with, you know, the Sony yeah. brand. And Sony just abandons it for the modern game of the time. Yeah. And that can be really depressing. Yeah. I, I think Jim Ryan's leadership uh, has been a disaster. I think he is the worst thing Sony, like he's the worst leader PlayStation has ever had. I didn't love Sean Layden, but wow, wow, it, you, it, he was so much better. I, I I, felt like he was kind of just like, I felt like he was a step back, but wow, he was so much better. Yeah. Uh, and people people are like, well, when are we going to get Bloodborne PC? You're never going to get Bloodborne on PC. Why would Jim, like, Bloodborne sold, I believe, 2 million copies. They're not going to put that on PC. Like, Spider-Man sold 30 million copies or something. That gets on PC. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, What's them announced the, Bloodborne PC just a week after you uh, release Summer this. of Games. I'm I am okay <laughs> with jinxing it. If it's a good jinx, I'm okay with it. Let's <laughs> let you know. Uh, but specific titles in the state of play. Uh, what were you guys interested in, or were you interested at all in anything? Uh, the re the Resident Evil stuff for me. But uh, yeah, Murph. I was gonna say um, it was one of those uh, gameplay or video game announcements i don't know how how we phrase these things now uh but that i had to rewatch it a few times to really feel hype about anything um like uh like that street fighter 6 uh trailer 
I was kind of lukewarm on, and then I, I actually really, like, paid attention. I'm like, wow, this, this game looks real pretty. The animations are cool. And the trailer's well edited. Um, I think, as far as, like, that Resident Evil 4 remake, uh, I don't know. It was hard to for me to feel excited about that. And I think it's mainly in the way that the trailer was edited. It was just yeah. kind of like, yep, it's Resident Evil 4 remake. You knew this was coming. But there was nothing to really, like, I don't know, go off of other than, like, a new Ashley design. Yeah. I, would you have preferred, like, here's just two minutes of uninterrupted gameplay. Yeah. And you can then sort of, yeah, you can contrast, like, this is the new direction, like, compared to what the old game used to be. I agree. I think the trailer was really bad, but I'm really excited for the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's been missing since E3 died is gameplay demos in these um in these reveals because you know they would have like sony would always have like the long like five minute gameplay demo showing off something and they don't really fit that in anymore because they have to get in in like a 30 minute video do you remember when they ended on e3 on um on uh, days gone i did they they did it yeah they did that once they did like a uh a uh like a two minute little showcase of days gone uh earlier in the e3 and then they ended it on another showcase of Days Gone, and people were like, what the hell was this? And apparently, that was supposed to be the reveal for Red Dead Redemption 2, mm. but there had uh-huh. been some, uh, there had been, I think there had been some shooting or something recently, yeah. and Sean Layton, like, you saw how nervous he was on stage. I think he was trying to, like, gauge the room, do we show Red Dead Redemption or do we not? And I think it was like, it's not, like, it, it's, it's in bad taste to do it now. Yeah. And, like... I, I disagree. I, I feel like people don't connect games to, uh, to like, like, I don't know if this is something you want to put on the podcast. I don't think that, I don't think people connect the two, um, anymore. Like, no, horrific, I, well, tragic I mean, I, happenings and stuff. Oh, I, I, I mean, I, not to get too political. I, <laughs> I agree with you. I, I don't think people connect those. I think people try to connect those to sort of put a bad blame on media influence, but I don't think media influence, if you literally just like look at numbers, I don't think media influence actually tells people to commit violent acts. I think, I think maybe, I think maybe because like the, the, what they showed from days gone was also really brutal. It was way more brutal than anything in red dead redemption Mm two. Maybe it's just because it was uh, rockstar studios. And Rockstar sort of got their name, like they got their going, like kind of etching people on and being like uh, uh, deliberately, yeah, yeah, deliberately pursuing controversy. Maybe that's I I think it's just the timing, like, you know, humans are pattern seeking animals. So, you know, I don't know if that Red Dead, whatever they were going to show was ever showed eventually. Um, I think it's just one of those circumstances where it's, a rough call either way. Yeah, because like it's just somebody over at Bloomberg writes like PlayStation reveals Red Dead Redemption Two. Is this in bad taste? And then like investors who don't have any, like who don't care at all about video games, read that and it's like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it goes into something beyond actual game enjoyment or appreciation. Yeah, it goes into weird speculations. Um. Oh, I was I was going to say uh, my take on Resident Evil uh, 4 remake is yeah there there was just not enough shown. I am okay with a new tone. Um, I don't need it to be particularly goofy, but um, I do also want 
I probably want more extended horror. I, I think I want this to be a contrast or a partner to Resident Evil Village. Resident Evil Village was much more like a, a newer Resident Evil 4 in terms of goofiness and action pace. So yeah. maybe if this is the sort of mirror to that, instead of them being very similar titles, I think I think I'll be happy. I've gotten into like a bit of a disagreement with a lot of people on so many platforms about exactly this point about... Like it's not that I I'm not it's not that I'm okay with Resident Evil Four having a different tone. I am ecstatic that it's ecstatic that it has a different tone because like I've I've said this on so many uh, avenues before, but like Resident Evil Four exists on a very specific lane of incredible, amazing, perfect action titles. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna try to put a remake of Resident Evil Four in that lane, it's probably gonna be crushed. Yeah. But also. You all—it's already perfect. You can't—you can't do Resident Evil Four better. What you're gonna just do the same game but spiff up the graphics? That's not interesting. If you just take it and you go, no, you know what? We'll do this and we'll just take away all the goofiness and the silly action and do it actually kind of a hardcore horror game. I love that. Do it like I said this. Uh, I don't remember where I said this, but like fork Resident Evil Two remake where. On one hand, you get Resident Evil 3, and that's sort of an extension of the late-game action game, which Resident Evil 2 Remake was, and then make Resident Evil 4 be more of an extension of that sort of tracking around the uh, police headquarters, that sort of horror game they had going on. I think that's way more interesting. I'm not opposed at all to doing a different tone with a remake. Um, my main concern is that it's in... It is one of those, like, we are remaking one of the, like, greatest blank yeah. of all time like and i'm i'm worried with remaking something like that that they lean into sort of a self-aware writing about it uh, uh it, you're talking about final fantasy 7 remake act you know what to a degree yeah i wasn't directly i was gonna say it, <laughs> it makes me think of those live action disney remakes oh you yeah i'm just worried about like inevitable like fixes to plot holes or certain things that haven't aged well and i'm just like bracing myself for the discourse about that you know <laughs> you're buckling yourself into because they already removed uh some of the ashley scenes from vr which i don't mind i'm just saying like yeah yeah things are gonna happen uh -huh. um yeah uh, i'm excited for when they do resident evil 5 and 6 remake because that's like, do you, do you think they would will? You want though? a Resident Evil Five taken seriously? No, I, I've I've never played Resident Evil Five or Six. I know, like, very very little about either one of those games. I'm just interested in like, here you have a do over. You can take these games, which in hindsight people are not nearly as positive on as the games preceding it and Seven and Eight, which then came after. You can take these two games, which people are sort of mid on. And you can actually do something interesting with them. I'd love to see them try that. Well, for that sentiment, I would I would agree with you. But for that sentiment, I would also ten times agree more so with like a Code Veronica or a Resident Evil Zero, which oh. are also very limited in where they are right now, and they had so much potential in their creativity. Remake outbreaks, um, but that's true. I yeah, or outbreaks, for instance. Um, but that being said, I think they will go for five and six, especially since five is one of the best-selling Capcom titles of all time. So they will just see that opportunity as well. So, you know, we'll see what happens as the time goes on. You know what I love? If you go on the Nintendo eShop, 
and you search like the uh, re-releases of the Resident Evil games, um, Resident Evil 5 and 6, they're packaged together. Resident Evil 4 is not packaged with anything. Yeah. Because Resident <laughs> Evil 4, that's a product in and of itself. 5 and 6, not. Not, no, no, no. You buy those together because nobody is going to buy just one, <laughs> just yeah, one yeah, of those. Yeah. Especially, uh, like, so long after the fact. Who, who's thinking now in 2022, oh, I need to I need to play Resident Evil 5 and 6 other than Murph, I yeah. guess. Murph was the guy. <laughs> you were also there. I'm also... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I was, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm also excited for... Uh... Sony is leaning more and more into uh, showcasing VR. I'm really excited for that. I was surprised I, I about really that, hope. honestly, that they said it was mostly going to be about VR2 titles. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really hopeful that they take VR seriously this gen, uh, because I think that's such an interesting uh, interesting new paradigm to design games around. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've hit, like, the ceiling with graphical fidelity. Um, yeah. At least I yeah. hope. We have hit the ceiling. Like, if they start talking about, like, Xbox 6 can go 8K, I'm going to... That's going to wash over me like a like a cold wave. But if they're Dude, like, we're doing new gameplay things with uh, different wacky ways of doing it, then, yeah, I will be actually interested in that. But totally. do you think... I mean, there's the ongoing conversation of... It is VR... Maybe it's just a cost thing, where VR is still too costly for some... Um, yeah. Do you think that it's still going to be a fad? Like, what, there's just going to be a time where it washes over and it's like, it's just not going to work. Stop trying to make fetch happen. Yeah. Or uh. do you think that a dedicated uh, push for it is really going to help the industry? I feel like we saw a dedicated push a few years ago when, like, PSVR first came out and we had, like, the Kinect and everything. And then, you know, yeah. people rated those E3s real low because it was based on games they couldn't buy because they needed additional peripherals to purchase. So I think it really just depends, like, what's the real breakout title for VR? You know, that's not... Probably Half-Life Alex. I guess, yeah. I think it's, not, uh... not, not including Sony. I'm just saying that is probably the VR title people would buy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Like, if, if, I, had a, if I had a VR headset, I'd get that. Yeah, Valve did make a, a power move saying, like, hey... You want Half-Life 2.8? Uh, you got to get yeah. the Valve Index for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but then, but then again, they're also not continuing to support it. It needs, it, you know, not. It doesn't need just one banger or blockbuster. It needs continual things, or else it will still be like any other platform that doesn't have enough support. Yeah, it's like the yeah. Stadia. Yeah. Remember the Stadia? Well, the Stadia, Stadia has failed. jack shit. Stadia failed for many reasons. Can we yeah. talk a bit about how Valve... I feel like it's such a just poorly run company. How can you have... like? Do you know? Do you guys know who Duck Church is? I think his name is Duck Church. He's the, he's the uh, lead director on the original System Shock. He works over at Valve. What's he doing there? He's not making games. Does is he it, just lead it, the storefront? I think there's a lot of people that just manage or coordinate the storefront or whatever. I, I, I don't... I, why aren't they making games? They have, like, <laughs> so much money, and they can't just... Sh like, oh, hey, we'll just do a portal. Oh, hey, we'll do a portal, too. Okay. See you, ten, well, it, see you 10 years from now. It's like, what is wrong with you guys? Keep making well, games. Well, if you look at what they develop, it, it to me, it's clear, personally, that they're developing hardware. I think hardware is like the thing they're pushing for and like th that goes into the lesson of you need you need games to support it and 
Yeah. Te- technically, I will say Steam does have like an ability to tap into other third parties or supports. I want to get a Steam Deck. I-, I do. That shit looks great. But that being said, like, yeah, there's no game. There's no game design anymore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's gotten to the point now where like, if they announce a Half Life Three, I don't care. Like, I don't oh, think yeah. anybody. I think that ship on like. Oh my God! Half Life Three is finally happening. I think the ship has sailed. I think people have just sort of, like, what? Who's who's Lost still interest. excited for another Half Life? Yeah. Well, well, that may have yeah. been the point of a Half Life, Alex, and a VR. Because, like, I agree. If they just released straight up, like tomorrow, they shadow drop, or magically have fanfare for a Half Life Three, and it's just a normal PC game. That's not good enough. It has to be. It has to be a VR title with some crazy new shit in it that's like, whoa, but that also, you can't just magically make that. That has to be dedicated. That has to be built, yeah. you know? And then they did, they did like Source 2. Did they release anything on the Source 2 engine? I, I believe Alex and that new Portal game is on Source 2, I believe. Oof. It's ridiculous. Like, yeah. just, this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is a, I always talk about this. Do you guys remember uh, the Justice League movie where, like, Henry Cavill, he can't <laughs> shave his mustache and all that? Yeah. This is yeah. what, this sure. is what happens when nobody is in charge of anything. Like, if there was a real director in charge of uh, doing a Justice League movie, he would have just shaved Henry Cavill and then they would Held have just paid down. a fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but instead it's like, well, the lawyers say you can't do this. The lawyers, well, you know, the uh, the people over at marketing think this. Like you just, it, it's it's kind of become an ugly word, or it's kind of like an ugly practice to uh, to assign so much praise to like a single individual like Kojima when they are tra- uh, surrounded by so many talented people, and they are. But you need somebody in charge. Somebody has to be there to make like executive decisions or else you just get a valve where all the greatest talent in the industry gets sponged get sponged off to manage a storefront it's ridiculous yeah a director may not necessarily be a complete auteur but the, a director for sure no matter what has the ability to maintain a consistency and have cre- and make creative decisions yeah as a whole body yeah a, a, a bad director is still better than like a committee yeah yeah and i've heard that for is sure. kind of the issue with valve is that they basically do everything by committee you need like majority support within the company to work on any sort of project which is why a lot of like uh, game projects haven't gotten off the ground they don't have because of the because of the scrum uh operating model they have going on right yeah whereas something like well okay i don't want to give immediate praise to ubisoft but they oh God. they do allow their teams to work on small projects if they don't have anything else going on. Yeah. And that's how we get experimental games like Grown Home and things. That's a Ubisoft game? Yeah, the little robot. Yeah. Yeah, cool. no, no, that was that was uh, made by a small team at Ubisoft that wasn't doing anything that day. So Valve, Valve doesn't have that. They're not putting out... I guess there was that job desk simulator they put out, but that was to demo the Steam Deck. Um, my final comment other than that was on Street Fighter, because I play Street Fighter, I'm not excited for it. But that being said, um, I think both 4 and 5 go on to show. It's got like the civilization syndrome where on launch it will probably not be super good. But with the continued support, I think it will turn like shape up to be a great game. I personally like how 4 and 5 ended. Um, but that being said, like to me when I saw it... Uh, 
I, I didn't like the art style being so like, it felt colorless at certain points and then the color stands out. So for many, they may like it. I, I just didn't like the fidelity, the high detail. It was, it was a little too much for me. I don't mind things like that open world campaign thing. I think Capcom dedicating themselves to an actual story in any sense is a lesson they learned from five and, and the success of like a mortal Kombat. Mm-hmm. Um, like story yeah. modes are in for fighting games because some people can't uh, integrate themselves into a community and develop the necessary skills. They want to be able to have a solitary experience with the type. <laughs> well, I think some people you like I mean? like me. I like fighting games for the characters. I'm not good at yes. them, but I like I like the characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So- exactly. No. Yeah. Seriously, though. Yes. Um, so you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, are we done on the state of play? Yeah. Mm. I, I I liked that uh the Dead Space game. Uh but Not I feel like I need the to Callisto see Callisto Protocol. I, yeah, the yeah. Callisto Protocol. I like that. I like when games go John Carpenter, but I think I need to see more of it. I need to know if this is just you know, it's the last of us but uh the thing in space, right? Yeah. If it's just like this cutscene bloated monstrosity. Um or yeah, if it turns out sure. that it's like well, it's a four-player, four-player co-op multiplayer yeah. game. <laughs> season one is season one is dropping remember, in a couple uh, of weeks, guys. Remember integrated <laughs> apps? Oh God, don't remind me. Remember uh, they tried to do that for Metal for uh, the Phantom Pain. It was like, oh um, yeah, you can use your cell phone as the iDroid. It's like, why? Yeah. Why would I do that? My hands are on the controller. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to play your game? Let me play your game, please. That's that's what I feel like half of the the intrusive elements are, where it's like, hey, do this extra thing. And it's like, can I just play the game you gave me? Not <laughs> yeah. adding more money to it, nothing. But Bethesda uh, must have made bank on that uh, Pip-Boy smartphone holder thing. Oh, oh, possibly. I know a friend that owns one of those that got like the collector's <laughs> edition of four. It, he's never uh, used it because it's a hunk what? of plastic. <laughs> Yeah. Why would you? Why would you buy a collector's edition of four? I'm just because it came with the Pip Boy. Oh God! Oh, that's how they get you. Apparently, it's not even there, like it's not even like a it. cheap metal. It's just plastic. Uh, it's a very sturdy plastic. Uh, and you're supposed to snap uh, your smartphone in there, but obviously, it came out in like what 2014, so it doesn't fit most modern smartphones. <laughs> okay. Well, moving on from that, I guess. Final thoughts, anybody? No. We're good. Do you want to talk about Pac-Man Museum or? I, I, I want to talk about it enough to be able to just transition easily. Um, I think what was interesting about this time around, number one, apparently the Xbox version is completely borked in terms of input delay. I saw oh, that on oh Twitter. No. I played it. I played it on Game Pass on the PC. Uh, I didn't experience any uh, input delay, but apparently on Xbox it's fucked, so don't play it on Xbox. Okay. Um, I like Pac-Man, y'all. I, I fucking love Pac-Man. That's all. That's really all I got to say. And it's interesting every time I play like collections like these to look at, because Pac-Man's one of those franchises that's like, where do you go after Pac-Man 1? Pac-Man <laughs> 1 is pretty like... It's set in its ways. Yeah. And you could do something like a Miss Pac-Man where it's like slightly different mazes. Um, but like looking at the, le- cause they, number one museum plus totally abandons Miss Pac-Man cause it's not a normal Namco game, but like you look at like ones like super Pac-Man or Pac-Man and pal, and they're about 
They're about specifically the items and gates. They sort of embrace the maze aspect where it's like, if you eat this item, it opens this part of the gate in this corner of the little screen. And to me, those are not fun, but definitely experimental and thoughtful. And I think the ones that really work are like Pac-Mania and Pac-Man. Uh, it's not anniversary. It's the championship it's, edition. Well, well, number one championship edition is like that. Um, and is the best Pac-Man game in my opinion. Yes. Um, it's not anniversary. It's well, I mean, other than World arrangement, Two. it's Pac-Man arrangement. That's it. Uh, arrangement. Um, also, sort of like, it's it's not necessarily a full-on fine tune, but it's just a stylized take with specific power-ups or whatever that sort of flavor the experience. Championship Edition is just really fun because it takes it makes a new gameplay loop for Pac-Man. Um, where it turns into a sort of speedrun efficiency thing, where it's like, oh, I got to find the perfect route to do this. And it just gets so satisfying when you get it right. Um, and those sort of uh, deliberations and refinements are just super welcome. I love Pac-Man. It's great. Wow. Does this, what a, what a, what a st- does this collection have like any goodies, like posters or manuals? Um, specifically what this collection does is it sort of gives you like a a hub room where you can decorate your arcade with different statues it's got like a little like a slot machine for you to get little 3d models to enjoy and you can decorate however you see fit um and they do have like a history section where you can look at the history um it gives you crt filters and it gives you little border windows with nice concept art but i don't believe they give you like you, I don't think they have manuals. A lot of these games are arcade games, Murph. Ah. But, but, but that being said, um, yeah, they, they give you like a little bit. They don't give you a full-on background history like some other collections do. No. Okay, okay. I see. Do you think there you can buy like a cell phone uh, periphery thing where it's like it turns your s- s- cell phone is like a little bit of the screen becomes like a monitor and the rest is just like this arcade machine and you can play a little Pac-Man in that? <laughs> They may try. Don't tempt them, all right? <laughs> Please. I feel like that does exist. I feel like I've seen that. Dang. I want to have, like, I'm, I'm still looking for, like, a million-dollar idea. I feel like once I get one of those, I'll be set. But every time I, I come up with something, it's always like, nope, it already exists. I talked about don't, this don't, once. Don't bother I, coming up with anything new. Come up with something <laughs> old and then just SEO, search engine, optimize your way to the top. That's all you got to do. I once came up with... um. It was like a, it was like an invention competition at school. It was oh like yeah. A, yeah. It was like a, it was a real thing. It was like, like kids come together, like nope. show, show some of your ideas. And it's like a fun little competition. One of my ideas was like a d- flying drone that was also a vacuum cleaner. Oh. But it ended up just being like a gigantic R two D two that just sucks up uh, garbage. It's like, well, I, I made a worse vacuum cleaner. Damn. Uh, another one was like. You know when you're on crutches, when you, like, injure your leg? Mm-hmm. You can put, like, a mop at the end of the crutches, and then you can clean the floors <laughs> while, you're, uh, while you're hobbling around. My take on this is that the American school system is just really, really uh, bad. No, I had an invention <laughs> We didn't convention. have anything like that. My no. school did the invention thing. I, I never did. Look, I'm in the American South, so uh, look. Yeah, I, came but, up with, yeah. um, I came up with a football in football gloves that had magnets in them, so it was easier to catch. Oh, no, you're going to... The magnets are going to hit somebody. You're going to hurt <laughs> People someone People do that with Velcro, Murph. Velcro beats that. Uh, oh. 
yeah, but I had a lot of magnets on hand. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. All right. Okay. Uh, I feel like we're, Captain we're America. To... Captain America could use that football because he has the magnet to get the shield back. Oh, and then he'd be I mean, like, like double America, Captain American football. Yeah, ca- Captain oh. American football. That would be good on frisbees. Yeah, no, you should retool that for frisbees. Yes. Uh, all right, I, I I think the frisbee talk makes me think that it is time for the variety. You know what frisbee right? rhymes with? Cities. Well, we should say the Variety Minute this week is uh, iconic cities in video games, given that our, our, our game of the week is in, I, I would argue, one of the most iconic cities of video games. Probably, yeah. Rapture is Rapture's probably the big one in terms of, like, at least creativity and, like, oh, coming up with a new one. I was going to say a lot of... Uh, a lot of cities really matter in sandbox open games like Grand Theft Autos and all that. Yeah, I was like going to say Vice determines... City. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Setting determines so much of the tone of those games, but also um, they're very, they're most of the time based on real locations. So something like Rapture being so creatively like, no, this is its own system, then I, I think that's super cool too. Yeah, well... Well, bro, I'm going to give you, like, a good five minutes to get all your, like, FromSoft cities out of the way. You know, your, your Cassian and Orlando's, your, your Yarnum's. Yarnum's pretty cool. Your Berg of the Boreal Valley. <laughs> Shut up. Are there... Do you not feel that there are iconic cities? Do you not feel that there's lots of iconic cities in From games? Th- there are, but um, I, was, I was just going to generalize and say, because, like, I was also going to include, like, fucking... Tomb Raiders and Uncharted's talking about ruins of cities where you sort of go back. What I like about FromSoft games is when you go back, uh, it's sort of like an archaeological thing where you look at what happened to the city and and uh, you get fragments and glimpses of it like a, like actual history. And, uh, you know, that sort of informs it. Um, I don't have a – my favorite city in FromSoft is Shulva of the Sanctum City. I, I love Shulva as an area. It is like mm-hmm. the – it, it is what I want in uh, in level design, at least for the Dark Souls games. Did um, you ever so play Kingsfield happy. 4? I did not yet. Uh, I'm, I'm going to record that eventually. I played the okay. other three Kingsfields. Okay, okay. I think you'll like Kingsfield 4 then. Okay, good. Good. Okay. Uh, any other cities? I was making a list of like cities I personally rem- remember very fondly. Uh, places like... Uh, Windfall Island in Wind Waker, Traverse Town in Kingdom Hearts, White Run in Skyrim, and then I realized that these are all like the first place you go to in these games. And is, yeah. do you find that's true for you? Like in open world games, like RPGs and such, like the first city is like the most fleshed out and memorable. Well, it's it's the Firelink Shrine uh, dilemma, where it's not necessarily the most fleshed out city. But because the game naturally, uh, or like city or area, it's not the most fleshed out one. But because the game keeps funneling you back to that area, mm. you just sort of it. You just get more time with it. Yeah. So it it yeah. 
Yeah. It's also comfortable. Yeah, it's that comfortable home experience where when you go through the gauntlet of something and it's tough and whatever and you come back, now you have the moment of reprieve that sort of is that deliberate pacing. Uh, since you said that, I just remembered Majula. Majula would be my favorite in that context. Where but Majula is Majula, is, just is, is Majula a great uh, little city? It's not a great city. Just, no, it's kind of shitty. Or is it just, or is it just the, that song? No, I, I like I like all of it because I I personally like I'm a big Dark Souls two simp. I like the I like the NPCs within it and I like that sort of living breathing thing. I would not want to live there, and <laughs> um, but I like I like the visual of it, the setting sun. It's sort of a beautiful solace, but is also slightly ominous in the context yeah. of knowing what Dark Souls is. So it's like it's oh, the, the setting ocean. sun is a bad thing too. You know what I mean? And it's just yeah. like shit like that where it's just uh, the manor. I love the manor. Yes, exactly. Uh, it, I love. I love it all. I think a. I think a city can be a shithole and still be iconic, like a like City Seventeen. <laughs> like Bioshock. <laughs> yeah, like Bioshock. City Seventeen is a really good one. Yes. Yeah, and the thing they do with City Seventeen is they use an entire city to give you an impression of the state of the world. Yeah. You yeah. know. Um, you see, I put down Isle Delfino. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, that counts. I'd count that. Sure. Sure, sure. Okay. Did I think that is the best would... part of Super Mario Sunshine. I, uh, yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like Super Mario Sunshine a lot. I think the strongest thing Super Mario Sunshine does is its aesthetic and setting. That's yes. that's probably no. Good. I will I will cop to that. What about um, going back to? The last uh, retrospective I did on, uh, what about Raccoon City? Does that feel iconic to you, or is it merely just reinforced oh. in the franchise? I think it's iconic. It's good. Yes. that People associate Raccoon City. It's like one of the na biggest names in video games. I think so, yeah. Sure, sure, but I'm also at the. I'm also in like the place of um. W name five places in Raccoon City. Uh, like you have the Murphy. police headquarters, the zoo, the subways, the uh, yeah, the subways. That's not I. That's in every city. <laughs> uh, the um, the the Oswald Spencer Hospital. There we go. You're you're pulling it. There we go. Let's come on, Murph. Uh, the thing about did you know that in the remake, Carlos's uh, chest pouches had jiggle physics? I didn't know that. I didn't notice that. That's maybe, the real jiggle. Maybe I, I need to download one of those shirtless Carlos mods. It's very. It's uh. uh I, there's a scene where he is he I think yeah it's one of the scenes where like he leaves Jill in the care of that other guy whose name I don't remember yeah and he's like yeah I gotta go or whatever and like he does a little hop and you can see the chest pouches they like jiggle it's very obvious <laughs> in that one if you want to find it huh okay but uh th three and outbreak really I think are what would make that for me Three and Outbreak are like, okay, this is like, we're trying to integrate the, set, the city into everything. I think after that, when we talk about uh, Resident Evil locations, they can be good for a nice cultural thing. Like, the village in Resident Evil Village is a good village, but I don't necessarily think they are, like, completely, like, fleshed out. Maybe yeah. villages, I guess. We'll wait. We'll see what happens in the time. Yeah. Or, like, I don't know. I think just the thing with the Resident Evil is that there's not a lot of competition for Raccoon City. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember Tall Oaks, Brogan? Where was that? That was the first area of Resident Evil 6. 
I don't remember that. No. I'm sorry. And there, there, there's the problem. You go too many places in Resident Evil 6. You go, like, globe hopping to where it's, like, you're not fixed in a singular setting. And I think that's, like, one of those issues where it's, like, the intrigue, the spy espionage intrigue and action have a conflict with horror. Because horror is usually, like, a very fixed setting. Yeah. You stay in one location so you can develop that location, you know? Yeah. Well, Does I think... 6 still do uh, resource management? <laughs> I think. Well, I'm wondering because, like, uh, how do you do resource management in, like, if you're traveling across the globe? Uh, well, I mean, it's broken up into levels. It's not like a connected, uh, okay. seamless thing. So it's more about like managing your resources between levels. Where are we on I, uh, Silent Hill? Is that a city or is that a town? I feel like that's a town. Silent Hill's I, a vibe. I count towns. I think at this point we're counting towns as cities. Okay, I think, I think that's what's happening municipal areas well it's like it depends on how much they they add into it like you know in the very first resident evil game they say raccoon city has like a population of sixty thousand or something and then like every subsequent entry within raccoon city adds in all of these like things like it has a zoo it has a massive ass zoo in the middle of town it has a central park you know i feel the like number scale is what you're saying yeah i feel like if we can count majula we can count silent hill yeah, 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 yeah. The 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 towns have been entered in. We're we're doing it. Uh, Where are we Silent on, Hill is uh... really good about it too. I think Silent Hill is the, per, for me personally, the best aspect of the franchise in terms of like learning more about its history informs the game itself in so many ways beyond just like, I think. I think 2 does a really good job with it, but I think a lot of people, when they get hung up on the franchise, get focused on the psychological solitary aspect of Silent yeah. Hill. Whereas, like, when when you really get into Silent Hill, there's a lot of appre appreciation for, like, the cult history or the tourism aspects, and you sort of just learn those different things and how they inform the game as you play it. That's really good. Does Casinoopolis from Sonic count? Well, I guess it depends. Is Casinoopolis like an actual city? Is it an opolis or is it just a casino? I, <laughs> Murph, I think well, you're thinking... Well, is the thinking... strip in New Vegas, is that like a, a city or is that a casino? I think that... I, I think that's as close to a city as you could get. Yeah, yeah. it is the it, New it Vegas. Oh, yeah, that's right. What am I saying? I sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also has districts like Freeside. And, like, that sewer section where other people live. Yeah. Uh, so it, like, maintains that Vegas identity. And I think that's, like, um, kind of core to what makes a city feel iconic is, like, whether or not it's just an area or it's, like, multiple areas, you know? Yes. Oh. That's a good okay. point, Murph. Oh, there you go. Yeah, whether or not it actually feels like a city or whether it's just an urban level. I, I love Haven City from Jack 2 and 3. Did either of you ever play that? Shit, yeah. Yes. I, I like Haven City. It's like a big brother, but in a kid-friendly GTA. Yeah, and I think that what makes it so interesting is, like, it directly contrasts the game that came before it. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and like, it's so interesting to see how the, how Naughty Dog, uh, like, changed, how, how like, its directions every, every time as it was trying to, I don't know what the word is, match or whatever, but I just loved Jack 1. Jack 1 is, like my favorite out of that trilogy because it just feels like banjo kazooie but fucking 10 times better that's that's how i feel about it so then when we go into jack two and three um they're very interesting in how they 
I, I like being able to traverse the city in so many ways, like the hoverboard, being able to pull out the hoverboard at any point in ha Haven City is super cool. Or like just being able to jack the vehicles. I, I love all of that. And I love it, how different of an approach it is to Jack 1. Yeah. I, I love also that um, even though Jack 2 and 3, they're not really platformers anymore. They still have that platforming mechanic. Like the, the control setup is the same. It's like, oh, it's just like, what is this? It's a, it's a Grand Theft Auto game with the most insane movement scheme you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I, well, without it, without it, that would be the moment where it's like, is this really a Jack game? But maintaining that core fundamental gameplay or like that, that movement system, at least yeah. that's how it's like, okay, yeah, we've carried over. There's continuity still. That's how you feel the continuity. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack two with Haven city does that district thing where you kind of always know what, what part of the city you're in based on like the color scheme and what sort of buildings you're seeing. Like the Harbor yeah. area is very different from like the farm area where you go into, like, the jungle ruins and stuff. I love that depressing farm area. <laughs> <laughs> Running over the like giant pumpkins. Yeah, but it's also, like, just... It's such a depressing, like, authoritarian tucked-in between, like... What is that? Chinatown? Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, and, like, the slums where crew and the gang hang out. It's like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily find... I don't... I don't... Three is the one I've played the least. Um, but I, what is what is what is the desert city of that one called? Spargus. Spargus. Spartacus. Spargus. Spargus. My bad. Um, I, I what I enjoyed more was um the Mad Max when you go out into the wasteland with your little dune buggy yeah. or whatever. I enjoyed yeah. that part of that addition more than the actual Spargus. If only there were Spargus things to do like out there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then they did the the Lost Frontier or whatever, and apparently it's not that great because no. they dumped down the movement scheme. No, when they introduced Dark Daxter. Dark Daxter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's already fueled with Dark Eco. What is? Ah, uh, whatever. No, whatever. No, no, but he gets overcharged and he becomes like like a werehog. <laughs> That's. <laughs> a werehog? Yeah, like Sonic. <laughs> yeah, from yeah, Sonic Unleashed, the werehog. Everyone does the werehog. I was going to say, like, why is that the reference? Why Why not, like... Because he's, like, big and purple. Why doesn't he become, like, Dark Jack? <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say, uh, I guess, I guess uh, RPGs do a really good job with cities as well. But we could take that in for another time. Uh, we can sort of explore uh, the RPGs because RPGs will have the metropolises where you get to talk to the people. Talking to NPCs, in my opinion, is an important aspect of city life and those experiences. Yeah. But we don't have to talk about them. Okay. Fuck them. Well, yeah, move <laughs> on to our, our main segment. Okay, all right. 
everybody, our uh, game of the week is Bioshock 2. Uh, just briefly, Bioshock 1 was a 2007 title developed by Irrational Games and 2K Boston. I think they're like the same. Th I don't know like the dev details on this. But it was directed by Ken Levine. Levine? Is it Levine or Levine? Levine, I believe. Levine. Levine. It was a first-person shooter with superpowers, largely derived and considered to be a spiritual successor do you know, to uh, uh, the, Im the immersive... Do you know about do you know about Adam Levine? Isn't that the fucking Maroon I, Five guy? I think I think yeah, Levine yeah. knows about Adam. He came up with the concept. <laughs> yeah, well, they're brothers. What? What? No. What? No. No. Not. <laughs> <laughs> you threw me for a loop, man. I believed it. I literally believed it. I was like, I'm not going to look that up. He wouldn't lie to me like that. The podcast has been derailed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's all good. You, you got me good. Developed, uh, by, developed by Irrational Games. Yeah, there we go. Uh, considered to be a spiritual successor to the immersive sim genre classic series, System Shock. Many developers yes. of Looking Glass Studios remained on this project and on the team. Um, through design, it I would say it is a more streamlined console experience, which is what I think defines Bioshock in design. Um, totally. And the setting was about an industrial industrialist named Andrew Ryan who built a city underwater and uh, the game itself scrutinized the ideology of objectivism to great effect. That was my summary on Bioshock 1. Alright, Bioshock 2. 2010 title developed by 2K Marin uh, with some returning developers from Irrational Games. Uh, Jordan Thomas was director on this one. This game removed itself from the direct conflicts presented in Bioshock 1 and sought to expand the world and put it further in time. Uh, you play as Subject Delta, the first ever big daddy to ever successfully pair with a little sister. You awaken a decade later seeking to find your lost little sister, Eleanor Lamb. Uh, all while com combating or fighting uh, her mother Sophia Lamb's cult and the and the collectivist ideology, which has found horrific possibilities in Rapture's ruins. Gentlemen, what were your first thoughts on Bioshock 2? My first thoughts, um, like the very first time I played this, I think I got this pretty close to launch. Um, I, I, I loved Bioshock 2 from almost like the first moments. Uh, that Bioshock 2 is my favorite of the trilogy, if it really can even be called a trilogy. <laughs> um, yeah. to, to me, Infinite's like this weird spinoff that just like references. Um, I I love being a I love being a big papa. Uh, I think this game does it has some of the best gunplay I've ever felt in a first person shooter. Um, yeah, yeah, harkening harkening back to our Half Life. Oh, yeah. Sorry, did you did you play it on uh, console or? PC. PC. It plays really well on console, like the control setup. I can imagine that. Almost, yeah, certainly. Um, harkening back to the Half-Life episode we did, I said that um, my my litmus test for a uh, an FPS is whether or not the uh, machine gun weapon is useful. I think that Bioshock 2 has a, an incredibly useful machine gun. So, ergo, it is a good FPS. What did you think about the uh, the spear gun? The spear gun's great. I love the spear gun. You know what's... Because you just... You destroy them, all the enemies, and you just pick up your shots again. You know what's better than a yes. crossbow? A spear gun. A spear gun. Yeah. 
No, uh, what I like is like those weapons. All every single one is like a normal FPS standard human one, supercharged into feeling like a big daddy. Like the melee weapon, the drill is like a dedicated melee weapon that you would continue to use. A lot of times you just fucking give up on the melee weapon. Fuck the melee weapon. But this one, it's like no, it you can use it. There's plenty of applications for it. Yeah, there's even a uh, there's that uh, plasmid. No, not plasmid. There's that gene tonic, which just makes you drop all your guns and you can just use the uh the drill and yes the game is actually i would argue stronger if you do that i think that's a better way of playing the game no that's that was buck wild because while i was playing this i was getting um i was looking up like uh like original trailers for bioshock 2 so naturally youtube started spinning bioshock 2 videos at me and one of them (laughs) put put on only a few weeks ago was titled can you beat bioshock 2 with just the drill i was like of course you can. <laughs> this isn't like, can you beat Elden Ring only walking backwards? It's like, yeah. no, the game incentivizes you, can't even you to walk use backwards the drill. in Elden Ring. Well, I, 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 <laughs> yes, correct. Well, <laughs> so the answer is no. Uh, um, what, what, what? I mean, the thing for me personally about what was so nice about the gameplay, I, I played Bioshock One in prep for this as well. Um. The two things I noticed was it's the speed, it's the pace. Oh God, yes. Um, the animations in two are so much faster and crisp. So like, if I need to reload or switch things, it's just like so fast. Especially Whereas switching in Bioshock ammo. One. Yes, yeah. in, in Bioshock One, it's like a it's like a whole ordeal. And don't even get me started on hacking. Hacking broke up the pace of a fight in Bioshock One so much it was annoying. But it was also I felt essential to hack in Bioshock One. Yes. Whereas in Bioshock Two, it's a very passive experience where it's like it still allows the pace of the gameplay to never be interrupted, and it just feels really nice doing. That. Yeah, Bio- Bioshock One, uh, Bioshock One kind of suffered because. It's a transitionary piece between like the more straightforward immersive sim horror of of System Shock Two, and like a more uh, like action focused game, which is what Bioshock Two is. Bioshock Two, I don't think it has like the horror heights of Bioshock One. There are really powerful moments in Bioshock One, Mm -hmm. but Bioshock Two kind of drops that sort of slow ambient pace to things, and it just doubles down on the action. And I think that was the right call for a sequel. Yeah. Well, what? Well, also what it did was was like it made it more expressive and cartoony. The art design is much more like focused on expressions and expressiveness. Yeah. And like they even pulled cut content from the original Bioshock that sort of that sort of emphasizes or leans in that it brings back the Rumbler, uh, which was a cut content enemy from Bioshock One. It's just a lot more enemy types that are very visible and like as soon as you see them, you know what they do and they do things unique and differently. That's really nice. It's kind of hard to see in Bioshock One the unique NPCs the unique NPCs of Bioshock 1 when you fight them are very like sort of hard to grasp at first and then it's like okay I get it yeah yeah um like going back to hacking and two hacking feels like an option whereas in one it feels like a necessity because you have so fewer yes. options within one itself when I think about one's level design I think of a lot of low ceilings and cramped hallways which I suppose works for the horror aesthetic but it's not paced like a horror game. The shootouts in Bioshock 1 are very frantic, and you don't have a lot of room to maneuver. Whereas in 2, you yeah. have, like, wide-open areas. Like, that uh, poppers drop. There's segments where you're going along rooftops, which is weird to say for a Bioshock game. Yeah. yeah. 
And then when you're uh, escorting the little sisters while they're collecting Adam, you're just like, okay, before you let her down, before you put her down, you're going to have a bit of time now. Just set up the traps in the area that you want to have and position yourself to be able to deal with the enemies. Yeah, I, I feel like... like, yep. I feel like gaming has really come around on the little sister defenses. I remember when the game first came out, there were people that... That's like when the height of like being mad at escort missions in games was. But, oh, but now, yeah. every time I replay 2, I love the little sister defenses more because it gets you to engage with the level design. Like the Yeah, like who doesn't... It's, it's such a well-realized system that you could just drop a little uh, t- uh, tower defense game in the middle of it. Yeah, and all the creative yes. ways you can use the trap rivets, mm-hmm. those are great. Yeah, and like Bioshock 1, like playing Bioshock 1 this time made me like the ending more. But the thing that still stuck in my craw about Bioshock 1's ending was the Big Daddy Little Sister segment. Oh, yeah. Um, that's where I think the escort is like starts to fail. Because like it's uh, you're, you're going by the pace of the machine, the AI or whatever. And then like it's it feels too stiff and it doesn't immerse yourself into the Big Daddy persona and the relationship whereas the relationship here is really informed you get an actual incentive and benefit to uh get these bodies and mine them instead of it just being a normal obstacle and it's just a way better uh thing to feel it it just it just works better for the relationship yeah and it gets you you to explore the level more like i imagine if you ignore doing any of the little sister stuff and just beeline the objective, you could probably beat this game, like, in three hours. Ah, yeah. well. Well. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I skipped... I... I actually... By the end of it, I did skip a lot of the... Uh, just because I wanted to finish it in time, I just wanted to be sure I had things. I, I didn't skip the little sisters. I would skip uh, the atom collecting sometimes. Oh. And and I, I ended up feeling it at the end. But this is this goes into one of my complaints with the game. I think the ending to Bioshock 2, a- after you get the Eleanor Lamb plasmid, uh, where you could just summon her, the combat becomes very trivial. And I was like, but Brogan, you can you not use the plasmid. It's like, but yeah, but why wouldn't I use it? To me, you know what uh, I mean? to me, that's like the end of Half-Life 2, where they give you the super gravity gun. You know, it's just like, yeah. go, go to town. This is like, this is now like the power payoff. But but you say that, but like to me, there's still like an extended portion. That prison segment, yeah. that prison segment, you have the entirety of Eleanor Lamb there. And that is that is longer than the City 17 uh, Citadel portion where you are supercharged. Sure. To me, that, that, like, prison, that victory lap needs to be crisp and, and fast. Yeah, Persephone prison does go on longer than I remember it. Um, like I always forget having to go back and like either harvest or kill the little sisters. Or harvest or save, uh, I should say. What was your favorite area in uh, in this one? In though? two, um, I love Ryan's amusements. I love I love fucked up Disneyland, because um, <laughs> it just really shows. I don't know the hypocrisy of Ryan himself. Uh, how he is totally fine with indoctrinating children, and uh, basically acting as the censor he is so afraid of. Yeah. I yeah I I I disagree on that one. I really don't like because I like the idea of Bioshock One being like he just follows his ideology and he's just true to it and things go to crap rather than well he's just this you know kind of two faced hypocrite what? who like but but even in like Bioshock One like he starts using pheromones to control people so I, like yeah. I, 
I was going to say, all right, we're going to get into philosophy now. I think the secret problem with Ryan's philosophy is it makes you a hypocrite because self-interest is not necessarily something that is ideal or idealized. You, if you are, if you are idealizing self-interest, self-interest is not adherent to that. Does that make sense? So like the biggest problems would be someone like Fontaine who doesn't care about things like honor. It would be stealing. Stealing is something in your self-interest. Fucking do it. Why not? And well, if you're willing to do it, you will be better than the people who don't. Well, see, that's the thing. Uh, this is, like, I, I've i read, like, this is a little secret about me. And nobody is allowed to click the video. Nobody's allowed to leave just because I'm going to say this, because I'm going to talk a bit more about this. I have read an incredible amount of essays and st the stories by Ayn Rand, because I was going to sure. do, like, a whole video about, like, the, the working title was Bioshock versus Objectivism. Mm -hmm. because objectivism as it is presented by Bioshock is a very different ideology from objectivism as presented by Ayn Rand. So like sure. specifically the, uh, the idea of like self-interest uh, and like stealing. Uh, if you read, I think it's in like uh, the virtue of selfishness or something where Rand makes this point of you, that is not actually in your self-interest, like becoming a pariah Becoming somebody of low social character, that's not in your self-interest. And when you begin to read more and more sort of into what he's saying, the word selfishness, you almost like, it feels like the wrong word for the ideology. It should be more like self-love, right? It's not the virtue of self, like because selfishness has this connotation of screwing other people over. Whereas the idea really just is, you know, you have a right to your own happiness and nobody, nobody has a greater claim on your life than that. And that's not what uh, Bioshock is really about. That, that's nice on paper, right? And it, I guess to bring it back to the games itself, it's not like Fontaine has a bad image, technically. He does by the end of it, or by the end of events. But Fontaine has an orphanage, and he has soup kitchens, and especially as Atlas, he 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 sort of is able to control his own PR. That that point you made about you want to not be a pariah, and you want to be a good force in your community or else, um, that doesn't matter. It doesn't. Because if you control these avenues, and if you act in the illest of faiths, you can control those social forces. If you are the bad actor in a community of good actors or whatever uh you you control that stuff so you know that's that i think i think bioshock one even if it doesn't necessarily uh reflect ayn rand's values in those ways i think still shows a practical application of why someone especially like andrew ryan would why this system would fail why that you know what i mean i i see again i i don't quite i feel like you know what i think the biggest problem with bioshock one is is that andrew ryan uh he surrounds himself by people who are completely antithetical to his beliefs. Yes, so like I have, would agree with that. McDonough, yeah, have like, McDonough especially was like super telling for me. Like, because he hires McDonough because McDonough says, I don't care about profit. No, no, no thing I'm going to make is ever going to leak. That is what got him the job. And that is like just complete. You know what I mean? No, well, see that, that, that would probably be very much about like that's very in in harmony with the sort of uh, uh, production as the highest achievement of man, which Rand wrote about. I'm more talking about like Steinman or Sander Cohen, these these guys who just create works without any sort of 
without any sense of aesthetics or anything like that. I see. I I disagree with that. Like, I I think that I think this goes because number one, this is more complicated because it's an art thing, right? Um, because with well, art, yeah, you can especially make, you when can we make get to the like, game oh, say anything you wanted to say, really. No, no, no. What I mean by that is is like the art of Steinman and Sandra Cohen. To them, they they are pursuing art. And what does Picasso do when Picasso is done pa painting perfect pictures? Picasso gets bored. Picasso starts experimenting. And that's the idea there is like that self-expression un unregulated, unchecked or whatever leads to things like that, where that self-love goes into indulgences. Those indulgences may not, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing the Ayn Rand ideology if she is anti those sorts of indulgences, but I think those are still natural within the story and within everything. See that the, the this goes to there's a there's a chapter in the Fountainhead where so you have like these art critics that also no, we, well the, the main villain of the Fountainhead is an art critic and he gathers together a bunch of sort of subversive artists like here's a man who wrote a book without using the letter e why did he do that well just to like he's he's mocking the uh, the parameters by which we uh, look at and then there's like Oh, here's a guy who, who's a playwright, and he specializes in writing bad plays. And it's just this sort of idea of art without any sort of standard. And she criticizes that. So I, I think, like, I, I feel like Bioshock, as like a criticism of objectivism, probably would have hit harder if, you know, probably if, it, if Ryan had been less of a hypocrite and if he had been more the central villain in every area. Because I feel like most of the other characters, they don't really reflect that. That's fair. Murph, do you have anything to say? Um, I think it is very telling that we are talking more about the philosophy of Bioshock 1 than 2. Because Bioshock <laughs> yes. 2 doesn't really have a philosophy. It doesn't... No. At the very least, you could say Bioshock 1 is built on the writings of Anne Rand. Um uh, whereas it's very hard to tell what Sophia Lamb is. <laughs> yeah. A, a well, you, it's, it's unfocused. On. Yeah. You, yeah, because Bioshock 1, that's like individualism to the extreme. And Bioshock 2 is like collectivism to the extreme, but it kind of isn't. Because no. it's just like this sort of cult of personality where it's like... You, and like there's a character in the game called Sinclair... And I'm like, oh, that's Upton Sinclair, that the socialist writer. Yeah. And but but but, but like, you'd think that he'd be the villain, like how uh, because if you're flipping the dynamic of individualism and objectivism, you'd think like he'd be the bad guy, but he he just isn't. He tries to help you as much as he can, but then He's his also mind gets taken over. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, ah, uh, why why isn't the villain just some fire breathing communist? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to contrast from the first game. Well, well I mean, I, okay. So, like, here's the thing is, like, I yeah, at, at the end of the day, there's there's not enough Marxist if it's if it's a communism critique. There's there's not enough text for the Marxism stuff. I was wondering as I was playing this where the meat of, like, the themes and the plot go. And for me, I finally grasped onto it in the Persephone prison segment. And it's not philosophy related, but it's more so tied to that individualism whereas like 
in Bioshock 1, I'm, I, oh God, I'm trying to articulate this off the top of my head. Um, in Bioshock 1, you thought you were free. You thought your choices mattered. But by the end of it, it showed how you were still a victim to systems and uh, outside influences and how little choice you actually probably have in terms of yeah. your individualism. And, and, and two sort of emphasizes that sort of little silver lining in it where there's a there is a uh, audio recording in Persephone where where there is another person becoming a big daddy and he's actually talking about Delta and he sort of characterizes Delta in a way that made complete sense for everything where he was like he's being brainwashed right now but Delta is fighting back every step of the way and I wish I could be so uh, willful as I don't, I don't remember the exact word. I wish I could be so willful as Delta. And then uh, like right before that, Eleanor was like, you know, our chemicals may tell us we love each other, but we love each other because we choose to love each other. And yeah. that sort of artifice of like, Oh, you know, are, is, does the choice matter? The choice matters because you choose it, not because it matters. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that to me like made, made much more sense in that personal journey and relationship than any sort of political or philosophical bent to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think, yeah, I think in the protagonists, you have a really sort of, I think that's really well executed. Where like in game one slave, you don't have choice in game two slave kind of, but your choices, they kind of do matter because you can choose to like, you can forgive, uh, uh, what's her name? Crazy. Fitzgerald. Yeah. Yeah. You can forgive her. You can, choose whether or not to execute uh, Alexander, right? You can you can mm -hmm. even choose the fate of uh, Sophia Lamb. You can kill her or you can let her drown. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> it's the thing where the... Um, what I really like that Bioshock 2 does with moral choices is that it's not yeah. about... You're not deciding the fate of the world. I guess in a way you are, but that's not how they're framed. How they're framed is, what's the impression that you are leaving on Eleanor? Because she is, mm -hmm. she is, you know, your quote unquote child, and she has like no social understanding in a way. If you really look at it, like her entire childhood was taken from her. So this is like watching you do what you do as Delta. That's like how she informs the world. So are you going to teach her good values of like forgiveness and not preying on the innocence, or are you going to teach her that you know you need to take every bit you can because the world is cruel and people are going to backstab you? And that's... I think that... Yeah. And you get six different endings depending on how you treat... Um, how you treat the little sisters and how you treat the three NPCs you can decide the fate of. And yeah. that really... Um, I don't know. I just really like that sort of payoff. This is the very first time in a Bioshock game I've ever harvested a little sister. And I did it by accident and felt terrible. Oof. I clicked the wrong button. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to pick her up. I, uh... Instead, I picked picked up her organs <laughs> um so i decided to go through with that and get the uh the sad ending which is not necessarily the bad ending it's just the ending where eleanor's alone um and the the change in dialogue that i got made me feel terrible <laughs> for that accident because eleanor's suddenly talking about like you need to like it's survival of the fittest and stuff and that you know just the different change really uh really got to me the different change in dialogue in persephone especially like when you summon her in she's much more brutal to the splicers i i one criticism i will have about this is that the moral choices 
are very obvious. Mm. When games do like branching narratives, I like it like Silent Hill 2 did, where it is completely hidden, and unless you're explicitly told that there are more than one endings, you probably wouldn't pick it up. Right, where like, are you going to save this character or not? You can just have it be way less understated. Just have like, you come into the room and you can choose to go, you, you like... I don't know how you changed the game to sort of height that you are making moral choices, but I really would have liked that more. I think it would have, um, like, for, for having the ending be sort of, like, the reveal of your choices mattering is always more interesting to me, I think. Mm. And that's hard to do because Bioshock is, like, I think, focused on choices um yeah especially these first two like that's part of the marketing that's part of its its whole body is like oh choices matter or do they question mark well i think um, in yeah. this it's sort of playful with it because if you look strictly at the text of the game there is like no not a lot of evidence that delta is like cognizant you know like he just comes back but we're not really given an impression that he is suddenly like not been freed of like big daddy brainwashing. So in those moral choices where you choose to spare NPCs, that's like you fighting back and proving your humanity, yeah, reclaiming humanity. And now your version of Delta is like a little different. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to complain about something really quick. I, I, I sort of vibe with uh -oh. Acer on this choice thing, specifically with the characterizations, like the first one, um, uh, what's her name again? Grace Holloway. Grace Holloway is the name. Okay. Grace <laughs> Holloway is like very obviously like good person, bad circumstance, understandable why she's mad at you, but mean to you. Mm -hmm. And then the, and then if you look at it in terms of benefit to reward or whatever, she actively rewards you for saving her. There's no reward if you kill her other than whatever you loot. I never kill her. Uh, it seems obvious the choice. And then I, I dislike, I actively dislike the Dionysus Park segment uh because it is just the little sister stuff um i prefer the little sister stuff to be a supplemental thing to interact with and engage in in the area rather than the thing you're collecting and then like the plot line with the journalist doesn't really pay off for me personally stanley Poole. um yeah and then and and then the gil alexander stuff I get the impression, this is so weird, especially with how it's framed in terms of like saving Gil, Alexand Gil Alexander's the good choice. Mm -hmm. I think that framing and then the framing of how he talks to you makes me think he's not crazy. He's just guilty. Yeah. Well, the Gil Alexander one is like, um, I always kill him. Uh, I always save him. Well, the, yeah. Like the odd thing is it, it feels like it's from that time where like the good choice in video games is always preserving life. Um, yeah. yeah. Whereas in this, like, you know, his past self is actively begging you to uh you know stop him because he's become this weird salamander tyrant with I uh you know it's it's interesting that we talked just now about the humanity within the big daddy because that mm. choice like i i'm gonna i'm like tripling down on this gil alexander's not crazy take because <laughs> um in the in the dream segment where you play as a little sister and you walk around and you see the different visualizations you see visualizations of subject delta dealing with the choices he's made to the different characters and the one for when you uh save uh or when you let gil alexander live is you're taking out a human outside of a monster 
And to me, that is exactly your same sentiment of bestowing or like being able to bestow mercy saves your humanity. Bestowing mercy or not killing Gil Alexander brings back that humanity in him where it's like, no, you have to live with your choices. You have to live with the guilt you've done and and you are stuck with it. That's that is the that is the condemnation. That is the judgment. Okay. Yeah, no, I I, I, I get what you're saying with that take. I just wish the I don't know, text supported it because when when non-recording with Gil himself because like Gil the the giant salamander man he's not like he's just begging for his life and saying like oh I'll go live in the sea you know he's not like <laughs> no, apologizing but, for things but it's it you know it's it's framed like okay so it's framed like he's insane to start he's not that insane he knows who you are he knows what you've done he knows the scenarios and everything he is aware of his 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 presence he has those sorts of things and and that gil alexander before that is who's guilty that gil alexander you know etc etc um before he becomes the monster's like hey i need you to kill me that's the guilt that's what i'm talking about mm -hmm. regarding the guilt is he's like oh yeah i i fucked up a lot no matter what i say after this point ignore what i say i need to be dead okay. that's that's where i'm coming from okay me. okay no okay yeah that makes sense I, I i get what you're saying what about what about you acer do you do you kill or spare or kill alexander uh i so i don't have like a go through play style of the game i've I've spared him, I've killed him. Mm -hmm. For me, this is one of those cases, though, where, like, it is... This is one of those sort of moral issues with games. It's a very similar to... Uh, I think it's in Mass Effect 2. There's a choice you can make at some point to either erase an entire species of aliens or you can, like, like mind wipe them of something. And Are it's you like, talking about the Rachni in 1? Uh, maybe. I'm not entirely sure... Like, I've just read about this, but it's like... They have choices like that within. Yeah, the Rachni would be an example, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. Or the Genophage. Like... Isn't there a Genophage choice we have? Uh, yeah, but that's not quite what he's saying. Or maybe, like, the Geth. I, I don't know, but, but basically the idea is that it's framed as a good and evil choice, but actually it's like... It's, it's like a bad and not quite as bad choice. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like... But, but 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 because it's a game and it's running on these binary systems of good and evil to make uh, choices for the ending, it's like one one choice is the good choice, but like that choice is still arguably worse than some of the other bad choices in the game. Yeah, well, I mean, like, sometime, yeah. sometimes sometimes good isn't good. Sometimes good is just lesser of evils when you go into those binary things. But then, yeah, but then the systems at play in terms of measuring, uh, you know, measuring morality is one of those scenarios where I feel uh, uncomfortable with how morality is played in games. It's not so much the choices you make, but the fact that they want to put a number on it and they want to define what it is. I remember Fallout 3 doing this, where like there are definitive good and bad uh, things you can do and sometimes it's way more complicated like the 10 penny tower thing or i thankfully the pit i'm pretty sure the pit choice re regarding the infant isn't uh numbered like that um and that's a choice where it's like uh there's a shitty answer no matter how you slice it so you know yeah fuck. i uh I, I just played through fallout 3 for the first time like a couple of months ago and i did the 10 penny tower thing and i was like hmm well i'll i'll try to like get some sort of peace going and then when I came back there a few weeks later and all the humans were dead, I was like, yes. well, well, now I need to go on a massacre, don't I? 
<laughs> yes, and but but then the massacre is like, oh, you did something bad, and like technically, no matter what, I guess in a way, massacring anybody is bad. I think killing people is wrong. I should say that. But also in this Hot circumstance, take. they lied to you. Yes, they lied to you. To, to go on a spiel here, you let the ghouls into Tenpenny Tower, and they're supposed to coexist. They don't coexist. The ghouls just kill everybody. And then they say, fucking beat it. You, you're you a fucking loser. So, yeah, there is there is a catharsis as a player. You're like, what the fuck? I trusted you. Yeah. What, what the fuck is this? So, See, like, this, is, this, is, this is why I think once you attach a morality bar to something like that, it becomes way more problematic than if you just include it and don't don't make it a, like a big question of morality. And yes, Bioshock 2, I agree. Bioshock 2 kind of doesn't because it isn't good or evil. It's just mercy or vengeance. Yeah. And I think that's a much that's a much better sort of uh, dynamic because you know the idea of good and evil it is a good sort of literary device, but it doesn't really factor into like real human life, right? Nobody's ever sitting their kid down and being well. You know, you are evil. You are good. No, no, no. But concepts like show mercy, be kind, th that's like much more human and relatable. Yes, and, and to Murph's sentiment, like that's what passes on. And those are when choices matter is when they reflect onto our children or the world itself. Like what, what we do good in the world or the mercy we give it matters so much more than just like, do your choices matter? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, to... I want to focus on this because this is my sticky point. I hate the Eleanor Lamb stuff. I oh. I think it doesn't pay off super well. Actually, <laughs> that 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 collectivist thing doesn't work very well. I like it when it's still personal. I like the Mark Meltzer stuff, for instance. I love Mark, the Mark Meltzer, Meltzer yeah. stuff. One of my favorite NPCs in any video game. Yeah, he's he's fantastic, and those are the sort of areas where I like Sophia Lamb's presence and all of that. But, um. Like the as a grand total, it doesn't play out super well. I like the big sisters. I will say we should talk about the big sisters as the ultimate unique yeah. enemy type because they're sort of an addition to the big daddies. Where it's like the the little sisters have grown up and now they defend little sisters. Yeah, and they are they are much tougher than a big daddy, and they are sort of the boss you fight when you've done all the little sisters in an area, and you really have to prepare for them. I enjoy them, um, and it and that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to add, I think they are a genius sort of addition to the world design. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it's 20 years later. What happened to all the little sisters? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, then, like, they go on the surface and they're stealing other children and it's like, damn, that's kind of creepy. Yeah, and it must be said that this game had a, um, a great ARG leading up to it uh, called Something in the yep. Sea. That's where Mark Meltzer comes from. Um, yeah. It was like... I. God, I think that went on for like almost a year. Like every month it would be, you would load up into the sort of like virtual office and every every month there would be like new puzzles to solve and you'd be reading like articles about children being stolen. And then um, that proved, I came in like at the tail of end of it um, yeah. where it's like Mark's uh, on like a boat in the Arctic and there's like dead splicers on his boat because they keep coming up in yeah. bathospheres to raid him. Um, and then that proved so popular that he was retroactively added into the game. And he was nearly uh, nearly replaced Sinclair as, like, your com companion. Really? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, like, that's just how popular that ARG was. And, um, yeah, like, the fact that you are following, like, in his footsteps through the entire game, um, I love that. And the choice, uh, do you know the sign that he, which Big Daddy is him in Fontaine F Futuristics? It says it. 
no, no. Before you even kill him, uh, your your reticle hovering over him is green. Oh. Um, and that's like that. Once you know which one is him, to me, that's the actual hardest choice in the game. Whether or not to kill him or let him live on with like his sister, his not his sister, his his daughter, <laughs> his daughter. Um, in this sort yeah, of that's interesting as close to a father-daughter relationship as they're going to get. And that leans more into what Acer was saying, because that's not a choice that's commented on. That's not a choice that leaves an impression. Um, but, you know, it is something that I personally grapple with as, a like, a choice to do. Going back to the big sister, um, the big sister stuff, bro- Acer, you may not know this, but Bro- Brogan, do you know that my brain is smooth as a marble? Do you know that I'm a dummy? I know. I'm. <laughs> I, look, we don't talk about it. This that, is the very. Yeah. I've played this game seven times. This is the very first time I made the connection between Big Sister and Big Brother. Oh my God, Merv, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like Sophia Lamb says, Big Sister is watching. I'm like, oh hey, that's like Big Brother is what? Oh. <laughs> there you go, Merv. We figured it out eventually. As long as you figure it out, you know. Uh, but it, even then, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily play super well. Um, it, it's always the personal aspects that flare or like that really work for me. I guess the other one to talk about, and we talked about it just briefly because Acer talked about it, was Sinclair and. I think Sinclair works when it comes to its legacy of untrustworthy uh, companion narrators. So like the, you know, the Atlas and the Shodans or whatever, like even when they're obvious, it's like, oh, it still plays out just the same or whatever. For Sinclair, it's very obvious. He's a huckster. He's a cheat. He'll do a bunch of uh, unethical things. But at the end, he's still like, I want to preserve my humanity. Go ahead and kill me, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The twist is that there is no twist. Well, the thing um, with Sinclair is there's a lot of uh, deleted audio diaries or, well, I guess calls. Um, originally, the ending was going to be uh, Sinclair was going to... Uh, fight back as a, a big daddy and be the one to actually drop Persephone into the trench to stop Lamb. There's like, mm. there's this um, unused audio of him like saying goodbye and like it, it flavors differently based again on how you, uh, how he saw you as Alpha or as Delta. Ah. Um, so, and that's like, I think the closest thing it gets to, uh, utilizing Sophia Lamb's philosophy because her view is that uh, hum- humans need to be controlled they because they are inherently uh, will fight for themselves. And then Sinclair, who throughout the game embodies as the guy who is entirely in self-interest, does a selfless act. And that's what undoes her. Yeah, yeah. that that's fair. Um, and, and there's multiple times where Sophia Lamb tries to uh, create characters such as Sinclair or such as Alexander Gill, Gil Alexander, bleh, um, where where they sort of embody those her utopian ideals, um, and they sort of come out. I think personally, still preserving the self. I think I think one of the themes of the game, when you go to the Big Daddy, where you go to all of these elements, is no matter how much you try to push in, and you'll still in you you'll still learn from your environment. You'll still learn from the memories of your ancestors, or your fathers, or your mothers, or the world itself. There is still a sense of self within you that will always try to be there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you how do you guys feel about Sophia Lamb as an antagonist? I like her. But I feel like she's like, she's more of a Silent Hill villain than she is a Bioshock villain. She feels like she's in the wrong game. I can I can buy that. Is it the cult angle? It, yeah, it probably is. It's also just like, I don't know. I, I 
Yeah, it's it, you know it probably just is that it's like very uh, Dahlia Gillespie, where it's like my daughter is a special daughter, and I'm gonna use her to rebirth paradise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I totally see like, that. Oh yeah. my god, oh my god, and you're playing as her father. Oh her my. like her father. Wow, Bioshock Two just is Silent Hill One, isn't it? <laughs> there, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It all plays that. Yeah, yeah. and by extension, wow. Bioshock Infinite. <laughs> yeah, well. it's like poetry. They rhyme. <laughs> Wait, is there a lighthouse in Silent Hill 1? Yes. yes always a man, always a lighthouse. The, uh, the seals of Metatron. Okay. Uh, what I like about Sophia Holy Lamb... shit. Because <laughs> uh, Sophia Lamb, I think... I, I, pref- I, I like Sophia Lamb as an antagonist over Ryan and Fontaine. And it's really just for small, like, personal reasons. Um, I think she better embodies an antagonist that's, like, actually personal to your the character you're playing. Whereas... Fontaine and Ryan feel more like uh, ciphers for the philosophy that the game is grappling with. They're less characters and more talking heads. Yeah, about the and what I love about Sophia Lamb is like she just monologues at you constantly. But like I said, there's nothing in the text that shows that Delta understands what she is saying. So I just love this idea of her just talking into a microphone to a, a wall. <laughs> But that's also an interesting case of like, uh, because Ken Levine once said something, and a lot of people have sort of taken him to task for it, where he was asked specifically about Bioshock as like a, a critique of objectivism, and his comment was that it isn't, ob- I'm not critiquing objectivism so much as just ideologue. The idea that you have a philosophy and you completely zone out from feedback to reality and you just keep going on with this philosophy. Yeah. Um, People have taken him to task for this, for being, like, afraid of saying anything in particular. But I think, like, I, I very much disagree with that. I think if you look at Bioshock 1 as a critique of objectivism, it doesn't quite land. Yeah. Because of what we talked about earlier, where, like, the characters, these are the villains in the in Ayn Rand stories. And they're supposed to build the objectivist paradise. But if you look at it as, no, no, these are just people who get an idea in their head, and then they just go with it, and they just lose their minds with it like Steinman who abandons the idea of symmetry or uh Sandra Cohen who's just creating monstrosities and he calls it mm-hmm. art yeah right? and it's about I, I think, it's about moral th- absolutism black yes, and white yeah. thinking. And, just, and, and that's super reflected in two and infinite to varying degrees I think infinite muddies the waters probably too much and two is probably just not landing in what they're talking about and i think one of the reasons why people take that to task is just because um as as a singular entry they're only like bioshock one's only commenting on ultimately one ideology and then as a trilogy you're like oh no no it is multiple ideologies of that moral absolutism but people people will hone in on that one thing because that's all that really matters to them you know what i mean yeah I also think I also think a lot of people just really wanted Bioshock to be that, and like you can read Bioshock as that, and it's not like it's not like Bioshock is you know doing a lot to defend objectivism or anything, no. but but like that that that's kind you have to dig a little deeper, uh, right? Because he he also said something to the effect of you know it could have been feudalism or theocracy or whatever, mm-hmm. and I think the reason he. I think the reason he landed on objectivism was just because he had been reading a bunch of Ayn Rand at the time. And I think it was specifically that he wanted a city under the ocean 
and he needed an ideology which could manufacture that. And it's like, it's so far-fetched that you need somebody with such insane willpower to make it happen. And he was like, oh, objectivism. That's how you do it. Yeah. 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 Whereas, like, we're going to talk about Infinite really quick. You know, Infinite talks about nationalism, ultimately. And then, obviously, the theocracy as well. Uh, And those elements are really weird to land because, yeah, he makes an entire country in the sky. It's almost like he secedes. Basically, the idea of, uh, what is it? Colombia is they secede from the Union and make a city in the sky. And I don't think that plays nearly as well. And, and, and no. it goes into the willpower and all that stuff, yeah. It's really weird in uh, Colombia that they have, like, this idea of the perfect sort of Colombian society, but for some reason they still, like, they're super racist, but why do they then have so many uh, people of different ethnicities? Like, if you hate the Irish so much, why do you allow them to stay? Mm. And it's like it's, I guess it's the not idea like people are that... easily able to hop a border into Colombia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. To... And it's like someone to clean the uh, yeah, toilets. I think... Yeah, I, I think that's the idea. But it's like, well, I don't know. I, I feel like that doesn't quite land there. Well, I because feel, um... racist ideology needs the the opposition to exist. You know, the yeah, nationalism aspect it. of it. Yes, it needs an enemy. It needs an enemy. Period. Yes. Yeah, that's probably it. Um, but it, does, it it just doesn't play as well in Infinite. Going back to 2, uh, there's a reason we're talking about the other games when we talk about this subject in particular, I guess. Uh, Murph's right. Did any of you play the multiplayer? Uh, a little bit. No. A little bit back in the day, but uh, it was kind of one of those multiplayers where uh, the meta quickly evolved to one single, like, kit and no one ever deviated from that kit. I remember it was the freezing plasmid and the elephant gun, and you were just going around freezing people and one-shotting them. Yeah, it's uh-huh. not about... It wasn't a game about balance or competition. It was just purely like, oh, we were able to make one, and that's definitely, like, looking back, that's just, like, an industry... Uh, that was an industry plague at the time, where it's like, we need multiplayer yeah. in a solo game. Who would buy a solo game? It's like, who the fuck would buy a Bioshock game for the multiplayer? Yeah. I, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, who would buy... <laughs> I think that multiplayer did have some, like, they at least flavored it Bioshock enough. Like, you, you picked, like, characters, and then as you leveled them up, you would get audio diaries showing how they, like, devolved through the war, becoming uh. insane. It was also themed as, like, the fall of Rapture, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was, like, during the War of Fontaine and Ryan, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, but, like, to defend it really quick, I will say, if you don't care about things like balance or meta yeah. or, like, actual competition or skill, the game is, <laughs> like, it, the game, I think, it does succeed and execute the idea of a multiplayer shooter based on Bioshock well enough. Yeah, especially I, in how it how plasmids function. Yeah, is it still active? No, oh. I think it died like a, like almost a decade ago. Like they actively switched yeah, off yeah, the servers yeah. and the re-release. And I know. don't think there's enough people to make its own server. I, it's dead. Yeah. Oof. I loved the uh, the uh, uh, what was that DLC called? Burial at Sea. Oh. Oh no, Minerva's it's, Den. It's time to talk about Minerva's Den. Minerva's Den. Minerva's Den is incredible. It's great. Minerva's Den was the it to me it's the best part. Like when we when we talk about ideologies in the personal stories, Minerva's Den is like when, when it really succeeds because it's so short and compact, well designed. The story works from 
point A to point B, all of it's great. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Yeah. That, that last area in Minerva's Den is a gut punch. That, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know because I bought, like, I bought this originally on the PlayStation 3. And I got Bioshock 1 and Bioshock 2 as a duo pack. And I just played through those a bunch. Like, probably for a month, I was just play, replaying those two games and just slowly taking my time through every area. And then when I started fiddling around, and I'd, like, I'd walk through... They have, like, an art gallery where you can look at, like, mm-hmm. cut concepts and stuff. And then I found, like, oh, Minerva's Den. What's that? And then I pl- pressed it, and it's like, holy shit, there's, like, another game here. Yeah, because it's buried in the extras menu, which is yeah. so weird. Uh, and it's like, also, that 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 laser gun, man. Wow, oh, dude, that's such a great weapon. The laser. Oh, what what Minerva's done does great as a DLC is it sort of remixes the gameplay you know. So like the the yeah. order you pick up the weapons in is real odd. Yes. The, the plasmids oh, you get are like strange. So it's more about like making do with what you have. Yes. Yep. And and like that was the time where I actively enjoyed like to one hundred percent the little sister gameplay loop of collecting Adam. Those environments, those circumstances were just so much fun. Those like were really like specific combat encounters, you know? Yeah. No, I I, I can see that. No, Minerva's Den is like, I don't know. It's like in terms of length quality ratio, it may be the best of the Bioshock trilogy. Uh, oh yeah. I mean it certainly beats yeah. out you know Burial what? at Sea, which Brogan and I were kind of talking <laughs> yeah. about in the break. Ugh. I yeah I I remember a lot of like Bioshock Infinite. It's like the game reviewers really wanted to, to think is great. Yeah, we're like on day one rave reviews, but then as people like it's it sort of sa- it sat in like the popular sort of uh, spotlight for a little bit. People were like, no wait a minute, why are you eating food out of the garbage yeah. of Columbia? I love that. And uh, then like one review someone wrote where it's like the his- history's greatest killer rummages through trash. <laughs> where it's like, and like slowly people sort of started picking the game apart. Yeah. And I think it's really sad looking at Bajag Infinite because you look at like the interviews uh, Ken Levine did before the game released and he's so energized and excited by the prospects, what they're talking about. And you look at the trailers and it's so insane. And then, uh, there was like a producer shuffle or something because the game had been delayed for so long and he basically got told, you either release this or I'm firing you and I'm getting somebody else to release it for you. So they just, they got it. The like, old the Final entire... Fantasy 13 versus <laughs> Ultimatum. Ooh. Yeah, but, but it's like, oh wow, so this interesting gimmick of tears, it basically exists now. Like there used to be, it used to be that you actually travel to different universes just on the spot. And like you find one whose variables are a bit better into your favor. Now it's all at like fixed story points. And like the actual character stuff was supposed to have massive changes. Just you could, which you could just act on dynamically. Like, um, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember this. There's a character in the beginning of Burial at Sea, um, of Burial at Sea Part 2, where... Elizabeth, she's sort of uh, knocked out. Yeah. And there's a guy with with a gun looking at her. Um, and Isn't he, that uh, Atlas? he's sort of uh, taunt. No, no. There's a there's another guy doing it, and then Atlas tells him to uh, you know stop torturing the poor girl. We're not animals. Uh, that guy is named Sulcus or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he is actually the politician who's like campaigning in that 
trailer oh, for Salt Biogen Infinite. Salt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, no, no, I, I know yeah. exactly which character and which demo you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning so much about deep Bioshock lore right now. This is crazy. And, like, that was just, like, an optional sort of pocket universe you could go into. Mm. But the game has none of that anymore. Yeah. So, like, I I really hate, critique, like, crapping too hard on Bioshock Infinite um, because it isn't the game anybody wanted to make. Sure. And then with, like, the Burial at Sea DLCs, it's like... Uh, why is this the direction you're going in? Where, like, you have this prophetic vision of Jack coming and saving the little, little sisters. Yeah, no, it, it's all right. What? It's all right that you, you get first-person perspective of Elizabeth getting tortured to death. Because uh, yeah. it, it's fine because Jack's going to show up and Bioshock 1 is good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like Bioshock 2 and, Bio, and Bioshock Infinite, they're a lot like Dark Souls 2 and Dark Souls 3, where... Um, the where second two is one, the best one, I agree. <laughs> well, well, where the second one is like, I'm going to take what was set up in the first game and I'm going to, like, I'm going to take that and expand on it in very interesting ways. And then the third game, because that's when you have the original director back, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do what I did the first time around, but I'm going to make it even more overt because you didn't get it the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I think it's definitely a case where, you know, there was a time where Bioshock 2 was considered, like, the least of the trilogy, and now it's really come around. With it being, with the trilogy being free on Epic this week, I've been, like, going through, like, Twitter impressions of, like, people playing it for the first time, and, or, like, playing it for the first time in 10 years or what have you, and, like, the general impression is, is, like, oh, no, 2 is kind of, like, the best one. (laughs) Like, just a complete... critical reappraisal yeah i think two is a masterpiece i still prefer the first one though i can totally buy that yeah i mean i i think there's a lot to say about one's efforts i think i think there's a lot of time where you measure like how they were able to merge that console experience with that immersive sim like we were talking about it as like a stumbling block but like that stumbling block is something to really respect in its own way and for that i agree for bioshock i think there's also more sort of isolated moments of really good game direction like that like that god awful horrible uh, like that flooded moratorium or whatever it is uh mortuary or whatever it is where you're like going through and you see the shadow of a splicer oh, that, and then you yeah with the, go into the, the doctor dead end. that appears behind you yeah after you pick up what is it like a frozen plasma yeah. or something mm-hmm. yes the, like or or that moment where uh where the woman is singing like talking to her baby but it's a gun. But it's just an empty carriage. It's like moments like that, I think, are where Bioshock 1 is at its best. Uh, Bioshock 2 has the teleportation plasmid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> way more goofy, way more like, what, yeah, when it tries to do a beat, it doesn't try to like have a, a nice sequence. I will say the other thing I don't like about 2 in terms of story, I guess we're, we're still talking about, is um, I don't like it when it, like, it gives me like a Eleanor Lamb shows up. It's like, Father, this is what happened. I'm going to explain uh, to you what happened now. Yeah. 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 I, I also think Bioshock 1 has better characters. Yeah, um, I would agree. It was like, yeah. It was like these characters are much more interesting than what you saw in uh, Bioshock 2, even though Bioshock 2 does have some really interesting characters. Well, it goes into that personal journey versus those different things where it's like, when we talk about the ideologies of Bioshock 1, those those different people living within the city of Bioshock 1, 
number one, it felt fresh and new, but also like we're much more about emphasizing the setting. Whereas like in two, yeah, the best parts of two when it's an NPC or another character is when it's all personal. Like I don't think it necessarily informs or makes Rapture better. You know what I mean? Well, since we're getting on uh, with the length of this, uh, I do have a a, a lingering question because there are rumors constantly swirling and they're getting more prominent as the years go on of like a new Bioshock coming. So my question is, do you guys think that there needs to be a new Bioshock or like a shock game? And what would you want from that? Oh, who wants to go first? Uh, you, You go first. All right. Number one, I'm very cynical when it comes to sequels. I'm of the opinion, <laughs> like, I'm of the opinion that sequels will happen. They probably won't be good. I hope they are good, and I don't, I don't necessarily get outraged when I see it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, that's that's how I approach like almost everything. Like, oh, there's a new Star Wars. Oh, there's a new Silent Hill. Oh, well, it's gonna happen. No matter what's gonna happen, creative disease, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I would prefer what I would want is something obviously new. Um, Maybe remove the name Bio in the shock. Maybe uh, maybe go back to more of the techie future roots. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be space. It, it could just be like Tron-esque or some shit. That'd be cool. Oh, um, yeah. But um, stuff like that, I, I would like that. Do I need it? No. Does it need to happen? No. Uh, that Yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the... like I think most of the Bioshock staff has... like I think most of them have left yeah i know there's a bunch of uh some the studio remember that uh game where you play as like a blind guy or a blind woman and you're just like using echolocation to walk around that was made by bioshock staffers there's another like there have been a lot of games which have been made by bioshock staffers Mm -hmm. which are like like this is kind of like bioshock it's like this aspect of bioshock Mm -hmm. i don't think any of those games have had like a real sort of critical just yes this is the team like this is maybe gone home i think gone home was made by some bioshock staffers uh, it was uh, made by the minerva's den people yeah 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 and i i really like that um but i i feel like we we haven't gotten like that sort of home run like yes this is a really expertly directed game in the vein of bioshock and I like Ken Levine still works at 2K, but he's doing his own thing, and that's in development hell, and has been for a long time. For nine so it's years. Like, yeah. So 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 for I uh, another Bioshock, it's well, who are you gonna get for this? Right? Is this uh we're gonna do another Silent Hill game? Oh great! Which of the team like who of Team Silent is coming back? Just Akira Yamaoka? Yeah. Because that that doesn't work. So. I'm very skeptical that you're going to like be able to capture that sort of Bioshock sense. As for uh, what would I want, I'm on. I'm one of those. I'm in the minority. I I don't want a city on the moon. I don't want like a city on the bottom of the earth. I, just go back to Rapture. Check in on Rapture in like 1980. Hmm. Do do Ronald Reagan where he's like <laughs> Gorbachev, open the door. It's like hey Ryan, <laughs> oh open the lighthouse. Rapture gets nationalized. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that well, is an angle more like well it's just it's more like just i i i don't care about there's always a lighthouse there's always a city because that's like okay so there's no just, teeth yeah well it's just like you can't just 
change the variable and still have a great game. Yeah. Bioshock isn't great because it followed this m- formula. Mm-hmm. Bioshock is great because it's an expertly directed game. Yeah. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'd like to go back to Rapture. Do do Rapture 20 years from the second one and see just how much worse things can get. You know what annoys me the hell off about the, um? there's always a lighthouse, there's always a, a, a man, there's always a city or whatever that line is? Huh? That because Infinite ignores Two's existence, there's only two games uh. in which there's a lighthouse, a man, and a city. You can't <laughs> you can't say there's a trend. <laughs> yeah. Um, um. I I personally yeah. um. I think I am of the opposite of Acer. Um, I am one of those people that's like shock game is when fucked up city. Um. You know, I, I don't feel Ooh, I need bastard. to go back to Rapture. I think that's, <laughs> to me, that would be like kind of like nostalgia pandering. You know, like, oh, it's it's a return to form. We're going back to Rapture. Like, I'd rather, it, it, I'd rather new I, things, I, well, you know. Well, well, like you say that, but like, I mean, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll defend it real quick. I think, I think if it's a shallow thing of like, oh, we're going back to Rapture in the same way it's fucking Star Wars. Hey, look, it's the Millennium Falcon. Mm. That's when it goes bad. That's when it's all bad. But then again, like, it, you know, Acer mentioned fucking Ronald Reagan. Yeah. There is like a political bend to that where it's like, oh, you know, Ronald Reagan and those neocons back in the 80s used Ayn Rand. They, they did. They, they said, this shit's dumb. This shit's fucking awesome. Yeah. And, and they weren't even necessarily adherents to Ayn Rand. They were just neocons that wanted you... fucking free trade. And let's just fucking, you know, yeah. and that led to its own ruins. And that led you, to its uh, own commentary. Did you know, uh, have you ever heard about Ayn Rand's relationship with Ronald Reagan? I, she I passed can... away. She passed away before he was president. I think she passed away in 78 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe she's quoted as saying that Ronald Reagan is the greatest charlatan in American political history. Yeah, no, I, I, I did know that, yeah, now that you say that. Yeah, and it's like, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Be- because Ayn Rand is one of these people who's like, he, she's she's very much scrutinized for what people want her to be, rather than, ex- like, especially who she is. Because she's not just, like, another right-winger. Like, if you're on the left and you don't like right-wing po- politics, like, it's very easy to sort of group people together like that. She really isn't that. Like, Ayn Rand was fighting for gay marriage back in the 50s. She was talking against segregation. She was a fierce critic of uh, America's foreign policy. She was talking about, like, the right for a woman to have an abortion. And, like, you can... People fall differently on that. But, like, this... Like, to, to, to just group her with, like, all those other people that you may or may not like, it's very unfair. She was a very sort of... Uh, unique voice within that crowd. Well, okay, so when we talk about boys, I'm, I think we're going to try to put a cap on this at some point, but, like, when we talk sure, about sure. voices <laughs> and philosophies and all that, that's when I'm talking about, like, the Ronald Reagan stuff. It's like, when a politician says it, a politician's thinking about what agendas they can use, and, yeah. and, and it's sort of like when you take a philosophy, especially a philosophy like Ayn Rand's, yeah, there's elements of, like, social liberation, a libertarian, a true libertarian doesn't, you know, is about like that social freedom to get an abortion, et cetera, et cetera. And those don't necessarily reflect when a politician is pointing to the book saying, hey, look, I've read the book. I like this book, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They'll have their own agendas to it. And that could also go into their ideologies and uh, the nightmares uh, uh, Ronald Reagan rapture could bring. 
what you could also just do like uh, Bioshock Cold War, where it's like the Ruskies and the Americans both get into Rapture, mm. and it's just like these influence campaigns that are operating against one another, and maybe you could do it more as like a like a Pillars of Eternity kind of RPG. Yeah, like where they built a about... new Rapture on the bones of the old. Yeah, yeah, that and would it's be kind interesting. of like the these opposing external forces are like injecting rapture with like this lifeline of we're like we'll keep you alive but you have to uh, sort of follow our interests and then you're just somebody in rapture who sort of because like the the shit thing about a cold war is that you two have a big issue and now it's the world's problem because you can't just find a way to live together and that's kind of like you can make that the story of another bioshock where it's like well these two influential uh, superpowers are both kind of trying to direct rapture and now that's everybody's problem who lives down here. And and then that could go into the choices of the individual, but then it's extrapolated to like a city or a country can't make its own choices. When we look at, you know, the world as it is today, there's a lot of countries that don't have actual power in decision making in terms of global politics or their own identities. There's always a hand in the pot as it were. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You could do something like that. I I think what I want if I get, if we get another BioShock I really want it to be more sort of role-playing focused. Mm-hmm. I th- and like sequence shiftable based on uh, character relationships and stuff like that. I think Bioshock is ripe for digging really, like really getting into that sort of meaty role-playing. Something more well, like Disco like. Elysium and Rapture. I'm, I'm like, thinking more New Vegas because I haven't, uh, I still haven't played Disco Elysium. People tell me I would love that game. It's um, it's really good. I, I I personally really enjoy Disco Elysium. I was once told that like the, it's so great you can uh, you can play as you can take all these different sort of political leanings and the game accommodates it. You can be a socialist. You can be a, a conservative, or you can even be a racist. And it's like ah yes, ah yes, the three politics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Disco Disco Elysium rewards and incentivizes doubling down on your character's political beliefs. It's more just, I thought that was a really funny way of putting it, where it's like the three politics, socialism, conservatism, racism. racism. (laughs) Uh, That's... That sounds about right. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I would recommend it to anyone. Um, I would recommend Bioshock 2 to anyone. I would recommend, yeah. even if I don't like it as much, I'd recommend Bioshock Infinite to anyone. I like I like games where you could have conversations about it afterwards. I think, yeah, That's Infinite. Really yeah. Infinite's a good game to deconstruct. Yeah. yeah. Um, they say uh, one of the best things you can do in any, like if you're trying to be a musician or like a movie maker or a game designer, I think the best thing you can do is to look at something that doesn't work and break down why it doesn't work. Mm, yeah. Uh, and I think Bioshock Infinite is great for that, where you can really sort of, especially because you have two uh, preceding games which are much better in a very similar vein, you can really come to understand why uh, tight direction, why really doubling down on good design decisions, why that stuff matters. Um, so yeah, I would recommend Bioshock Infinite. All right. All right. Well, if we wanted to recommend you, Acer, and your content, where where might people find that? Uh, you can find me on YouTube at YouTube. At YouTube. At YouTube. I was going to be like at YouTube.com slash Acer Aesthetics. <laughs> I don't think I have that. I think mine is like 
at youtube.com slash uh, go and get that bread, everyone. Wink, wink, or yeah. something, some nonsense like that. And the thing, the problem is, I've linked my YouTube account on so many different places that if I change it now, I'm going to have to find everywhere <laughs> I'm linked and fix that too. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, just go on YouTube, Acer Aesthetics. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, same handle. Uh, I think that's twittercom Aesthetics. But there's another guy who's like a former heroin addict, now bodybuilder. What? Who, who also calls himself Acer Aesthetics. Oh, no. And I don't know if he has the handle. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Maybe you I... should have thought, rethought it. Oh, it's too late now. What's no, done is well, done. You've made your I've choices. Been Acer Aes- I'm Acer- I've been Acer Aesthetics for longer than him, and I have more followers. So I feel like I should get the handle, not him. That's where your objectivist Ayn Rand ideology is coming in, Acer. It's a man <laughs> not entitled to the handle of his Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, it all well. comes full circle. Wait, wait. You also have a podcast, right? Well, we plug oh, yeah, that at the I never, start. Uh, I never pluck that. It's the uh, Essays and Espresso podcast. There I'm the best one. We're, there are three of us who do that podcast together. I'm the best one. <laughs> How do the Damn. other two feel about that? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> that weight. I tell them probably weekly that it's my way or the highway. Oh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Damn, maybe this Iron Man thing is getting out of hand. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Murph's the best one out of this podcast. Uh, Murph, what do we have? Uh, we have we have TwinGeeks.com where you can find regular articles about uh, contemporary and independent cinema, as well as podcasts relating to that. Brogan, you just finished up uh, a guest spot on uh, the Twin Geeks podcast. Ralph Bakshi. Talk, yeah. yeah, talking about Ralph great. Bakshi. Uh, first time I'd ever heard of a uh, uh, pop American pop. Or what that it was it was it was amazing. It must see movie. Uh, yeah, I need to seek that great. out. That sounds like great. That sounds great. Um, is he is he the guy who did those old Lord of the Rings movies? Yeah, he did the original. The other Lord of the Rings yeah. movies were Rankin and Bass, but yes. Yeah, and then um, we also have I'm thinking of spoiling things, which covers uh, movies in theaters right now. I may have been scheduled for an upcoming uh, movie. Uh, Top Gun. <laughs> nope, nope. Uh, it's it's going to be Elvis, most likely. <laughs> Oh, God. All right, well, here we go. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I don't even need to say the other ones. <laughs> uh, don't Let the Modern Cast Get You, which covers the uh, movies of Modern Media, uh, micro-budget uh, movies made by the ever-wonderful Matt Farley, a man of 32,000 songs. And, uh, wait, Murph, what is our next episode? So, oh, you're putting it on me this time because you messed it up. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, I didn't mess it up. <laughs> uh, next time, we're going to do a bit of a, a half-and-half special. It's going to be uh, covering the the legacy and fall of E3 with uh, our good buddy Calvin, who has uh, covered E3s in the past. Um, and we'll also, in the theme of legacy, we will be talking about Blood Omen Legacy of Cain. Blah, 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 blah. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Acer Aesthetics, for coming on. This, oh, this has been great. a good episode. Yeah. I think this has been a good episode. I've done a lot of shit podcasts in my day. <laughs> this ain't one of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take that. Write on. that on the box. Yeah. I think we're good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's playing. All right.